for Fan for Racing's NASCAR Race Review. And tonight we're going to be reviewing New Hampshire, Motor Speedway, and Berlin Raceway. So joining me for tonight's show is our co-host for tonight, Owen Stewart. Welcome to the show, Owen. Thank you. Good to be co-hosting this show for the first time. Um, been reading up a lot on these ARCA races, and I'm definitely excited to discuss them. Okay, yes, there is a lot to discuss there. So we're going to start off with a review of the Arkham Menard Series at Berlin Raceway, and then we're going to offer a few updates uh, from the NASCAR Truck, the ARCA East, and the West Series, and none of those series raced this weekend, uh, but we'll make sure everybody's up to date with what's going on in each of those series. And then we're going to, at the top of the hour, we will review the Xfinity Series at New Hampshire and about a quarter after the Cup Series at New Hampshire. Tonight, our NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off will start at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time with our Fan for Racing crew, and that's when Jay and Tommy will be coming on board. So, uh, Owen, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, we're going to review that race at Berlin Raceway this weekend. For the first time in 10 races, we had someone other than Ty Gibbs or Corey Heim win the race. Daniel Dye dominated this race at Berlin Raceway. Yeah, I think the first thing I notice about Daniel Dye is that I'm looking here at his racing reference page, and his birth date is December 4th, 2003, which makes me feel old. I'm only 20 years old, and I'm looking at his <laughs> page, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, but besides that, I mean, second career ARCA start, and he, like you said, he dominated. That was a cool alliteration, too. Daniel Dye dominated at Berlin. 198 laps led. Uh, he absolutely crushed the field. And beating guys like Ty Gibbs and Corey Heim, even in a series like Arco where there's only, I think, 16 cars on track for that race, that's an extremely impressive accomplishment for a guy that's only uh, 17 years old. Uh, I mean, there are things that he's not even allowed to legally do yet, and he just went out there and crushed uh, two very, very, very good drivers. Uh, one guy who has multiple Xfinity wins already this season. So I hadn't heard the name Daniel die before this weekend, but believe me, I'm impressed. Well, we were fortunate to have Daniel on the show at the beginning of the Arkham Menard Series season, and uh, we are going to have him back on the show this Thursday night, and uh, we'll be able to talk to him about that victory. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it or not. I, I did happen to catch it. And at the end of that race, Daniel Dye was in sheer disbelief. He couldn't believe uh, that he had actually won that race. Uh, because this season has been so dominated by Ty Gibbs and Corey Heim, the number one and number two driver in the series. So uh, he was just elated, uh, but still in shock that he actually won this race. So uh, he said he was freaking out a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would be too. I mean, Dan like you said, Corey Heim, Ty Gibbs, beating those guys is no small feat. And it's been 10 races this season. Well, that was the 10th, but nine races of those two guys just completely crushing the entire Arkham Menards field. And this guy comes in in just his second start and wipes the floor with them. And the other thing about this victory is this is really going to open some eyes in the higher series. I mean, Dye's driving 
a GMS racing ARCA car. Obviously, he's in a developmental series, but GMS has a prominent truck series team, and they're reportedly going to try to move up to the Cup Series next year as well. Uh, That's in the very far future for a 17-year-old, but uh, just doing this in a part-time role, picking up a win over guys like that, and doing it in dominating fashion, leading all but two laps, Daniel Dye is going to get rewarded. It might not be this season, but it's coming for him for sure. Yes, I I will totally, totally agree with that. I'm going to go over the uh, top ten results from this. uh, It was called the uh, Zinzer Smart Coach 200 at Berlin Raceway in Michigan this week. Uh, Daniel Dye, of course, uh, we've been talking about it. He was the leader. His biggest challenger all night was Ty Gibbs. Uh, in that number 18 car, Ty had to settle for a second-place finish, and then it was Corey Heim finishing in third. Uh, Taylor Gray, who's returned back to the race car uh, after having that streetcar incident, came home with a fourth-place finish. And Jesse Love, last year's ARCA East champion, I'm sorry, ARCA West champion, with, uh, is the fifth place finisher last year he raced with uh, bill McAnally racing uh, he's still doing that in the west but this year he's also racing for venturini motorsports in that number 15 car the next five finishers nick sanchez Ming- mason mingus gracie trotter owen smith and number 10 morgan alexander so uh, uh what do you have to say about those finishes well, I think first off, I uh, I was looking through more racing reference pages, just going down the list, and Jesse Love's 2005 birthday jumps out at me because I don't even think he's legally allowed to drive a streetcar in most states. So, yeah, dude finished fifth in an ARCA race, and he can't even drive on the street. So that's pretty cool. But just going down this list in general, I, I like how you mentioned Taylor Gray because I think he's a very talented driver. And, I mean, behind Die Gibbs, and Heim, he finished fourth. So I almost – I almost feel like you have to think of it as the ARCA series and then the ARCA 1.5 series almost behind Gibbs and Heim because they have just been the class of the field this season and Die destroyed both of them this race. But then behind them, Gray and Love, two guys who fully can develop into drivers in the higher series. And Nick Sanchez, who really impressed me with his run at Talladega earlier in the year. If I remember correctly, I think he was in the lead or in the top two with a couple laps to go. And he kind of got shuffled out at the end, but... He was up there for a long time. He really showed me that he's got something. Uh, Gracie Trotter, developmental prospect for Venturini. I've been really excited to see what she could do this season in that car. Um, Hasn't grabbed a win or anything like that yet, but she has been pretty impressive. She's another young one, uh, not even 20 years old yet. So, yeah, I mean, there are a ton of up-and-coming drivers in this top ten. And then there's Mason Mingus, who actually – if I remember correctly, he was in the truck series a while ago. I mean, he was yeah. there in 1994. Yeah. So compared to the rest of these guys, he's an antique. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely a uh, a diverse top ten in terms of age, too. I mean, you go from 1994 to 2005. Um, it, it's just good to see somebody new break up to number one. I mean, Daniel Dye completely shocked the Arca field with that. Um, it, it's just great to see another name up there, especially seeing that Gibbs and Heim probably will not be in the ARCA series next year. 
Yes, I've got a feeling both of those drivers will be moving on. Uh, now, there were some drivers that did run into troubles this week. Thad Moffat, who's had a good season so far uh, in that number 46 car, uh, or, yeah, in the number 46 Ford, had power steering issues. You had Brad Smith, who had issues with his brakes. Tony Costantino had some handling issues, as did Mike Basham. So a few drivers with some uh, issues this race, uh, but especially Thad Moffat, uh, don't be, uh, don't take that at face value because we will see him back up in that top five, I'm sure, at this next race. Let's take a look at the yeah, standing. Always... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I've always been a fan of thought, uh, Thad Moffat. Uh, I think my the first Arca race I ever watched, I'm pretty sure he finished in the top three. And I just remember recognizing the car. Uh, it's basically a Richard Petty Motorsports replica, but with a six instead of a three. And it always stood out as unique to me. But <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's his, uh, that is the King's uh, grandson, uh, Thad Moffat. And, uh, yeah, he's following in his uh, grandfather's footsteps for sure. So let's go ahead and cover the uh, series point standing. And actually, uh, we also have a Sioux Chief standings that we'll go over as well, because this was a Sioux Chief race as well. And because what happens is that 10 races within the Arkham Menard Series are designated as Sioux Chief showdown events. This was one of them. And so the point standings, uh, we will take a look at that after this event as well. But let's start with the Arkham Menard Series. Yeah, looking at these standings right now, there's still a crazy battle at the top between Haim and Gibbs, separated by just five points. Uh, Haim, the only driver to have a top ten finish in all ten races, but both drivers have finished in the top five in nine out of the ten races. Uh, sort of a Denny Hamlin start of the 2021 season uh, type start for both of those guys. Uh, 538 points for Haim, 533 for Gibbs in 10 races, both just incredible starts. The number that really stands out to me, though, for Ty Gibbs, 796 laps led out of 1,265 <laughs> total laps completed. He's led over uh, 60% of the laps that he's run. That's just an incredible number, regardless of the competitiveness of the series you're in. Uh, behind that raging battle, uh, 74 points back, Thad Moffitt, and then Nick Sanchez in fourth is 91 points out. Both of those guys with eight top ten finishes on the season. Sanchez with five top five and Moffitt with four. Uh, those are actually the only four drivers that have started all ten races. But Brad Smith is the top driver who has not competed in all ten. He has started nine of the ten races. Uh, but he has only finished two and completed 471 laps. Behind him, it is mostly part-time drivers. Uh, Drew Dollar is sixth. Kyle Sieg is 7th, brother of Ryan Sieg in the Xfinity Series. Uh, Gracie Trotter is 11th. Jack Wood is ninth. Those are both drivers who have made six starts in the series with three top ten finishes. Uh, And then Taylor Gray, who you mentioned, he's currently down in 19th with just three starts in the series this year. Uh, But Gray does have two top fives and three top tens in those starts. Uh, But looking at at these standings right now, uh, Hyman Gibbs are obviously going to be in a neck-and-neck battle for the championship down the stretch, uh, though Moffitt and Sanchez aren't too far out to make this thing interesting. If they can pick up a uh, Daniel Dye-esque win here in the next few weeks, they might be able to 
draw closer to Hyman Gibbs, close enough to maybe uh, threaten them a little bit. I agree with you. You never know what can happen. And Daniel Dye uh, definitely proved that fact uh, this past weekend at uh, at uh, Berlin Raceway in Michigan. Uh, now we want to take a look at the Sushi Showdown standings. I know sometimes it's a – oh, I was able to pull it up. Are you able to pull it up? Because I know sometimes it's a little difficult. I did find it, yeah. I had to go, like, into the – depths of the Arca site, but I did find it. <laughs> oh, okay. Is yeah, and then this standing... That? Oh, yeah, for sure. These standings are actually much closer in terms of the top four. Uh, there are still only, I think, six drivers, it looks like, that have actually started all four of the Sioux Chief races to this point. Uh, Gibbs, Heim, Sanchez, Moffitt, uh, Brad Smith, and it looks like I think it looks like Gracie Trotter started three of the four, actually. So just the five. Um, but oh, mm-hmm. and Owen Smith. Okay, so six. So that uh, Gibbs actually has a five-point lead on Corey Heim in those four races. So reverse of the total arc of standings. But Nick Sanchez and Thad Moffitt are really not that far behind. Nick Sanchez is 12 points off the lead. Thad Moffitt is 21 points off the lead. Uh, they've both picked up top three finishes in one of those races and a pair of top five. Uh, Sanchez has been top ten in all four of the two chief races. Moffitt did have one slip-up finishing outside the top ten. And then beyond them, Owen Smith with 123 points. And Jesse Love in just three starts has 121 points, including a second-place finish. So Love has been very impressive with a limited schedule. Uh, Brad Smith also 121 points, but he has made all four starts. And then Gracie Trotter with 114 is eight. Alex Club and Tony Costantino round out the top ten. But Die with just two starts, already up to 11th place with that win, 80 points in just two starts. Obviously still a huge gap to make up, but not too crazy when you consider that he just won his second race. <laughs> exactly. Second race in the upcoming art series and uh, – you know, he was racing with uh, Ben Kennedy Racing, and GMS just signed him as a part-time driver for their organization. So uh, really kind of cool to see uh, Daniel Dye getting that opportunity and making the most of it with a victory. Yeah, it's always great to see somebody, especially somebody at that age in a developmental series, getting an opportunity with a, you know, a, a well-known team like GMS. And like you said, taking the most of, or making the most of it, I mean, we see a lot of people get the opportunities but not actually take advantage of it. They wreck out or they don't run maybe as well as they should. But Daniel Dye wasting no time. Second career start in a great car, and he leads all but two laps at a tough racetrack in Berlin. I was reading many comments from drivers saying that that was a very difficult track, was not easy to learn whatsoever, and most of these guys had no experience on the track either. So awesome job including Daniel. by Daniel Dye. And yeah, he just shocked everybody. That was awesome. Yeah, it really was an awesome race. Okay, now uh, we're going to move on to the other series that did not race, uh, including the short, the uh, Menards East, Arca Menards East, and Arca Menards West. Uh, the Arca East will be racing on July the 24th at Iowa Speedway, one of my favorite tracks. It will be, by the way, it's going to be a combination event. Because not just is it the ARCA East racing in Iowa, the ARCA 
uh, Menard Series is also racing at, our, at uh, Iowa Speedway in the same race, but these guys are going to compete, be competing for different championships. So that's going to make it exciting. And uh, it is the Shore Lunch 150. It will be televised on MAV TV. Uh, we've gone over the series point standings for the uh, ARCA Menard Series. Let's just touch on, on the top five drivers in the ARCA East. Yeah, so the ARCA East actually is led by Sammy Smith right now, who already has picked up three wins in just five starts. He was victorious at Pensacola, Nashville, and Kenley Speedway. Uh, behind him, he has a – actually, speaking of Iowa Speedway, I just raced there on NASCAR Heat earlier, couldn't figure it out whatsoever, spun my truck in turn <laughs> one. But that's besides oh, the point. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, I don't have a very great truck right now in career mode. But uh, Smith with a 30-point lead over Mason Diaz. Uh, Joey Is is in third. He's 34 out. There is actually a very tight battle at the top behind Smith. Mason Diaz, Joey Is, Max Gutierrez, and our very own Daniel Dye are just 13 points apart from second to fifth. Uh, all four of those drivers, with the exception of Mason Diaz, have finished top 10 in all five races. Diaz with four top tens and a pole award. Uh, but Sammy Smith, kind of like Ty Gibbs has in the Arkham Menard series, has led a ton of laps, 396 out of 912. Yeah. So he's led nearly half of the laps completed, Mason Diaz having led nearly 200, uh, with 125 of those actually being led by uh, Ty Gibbs, who competed in one race and, of course, won it by leading every single lap. Uh, but overall, the battle at the top is pretty tight. Uh, sixth place, Parker Retzlaff, and seventh place, Raja Karuth, are also very, very close to that battle. Just 17 points right now, separating Mason Diaz in second and Karuth in seventh. So really a raging battle in the Arca, in the Arca East series right now. Yes, indeed. Sammy Smith has really been up there. He's got a 1.8 average finish, which is really incredible. When you think That's about incredible. in five races. Yeah, that is that is amazing. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of these drivers are capable of winning. Uh, and it's going to be fun to see what happens at Iowa because it's got away. They're racing with the Arkham and Art Series uh, along with the Arca East. And the points are going to be tallied according to their series. So they're going to have a chance to race with drivers like Ty Gibbs and Corey Heim and some of these drivers that are doing really, really well right now. So uh, I, I think this is going to be a fun one to watch, and I can't wait. Uh, I, I'm thinking about going out there. <laughs> it's a little bit of a drive for me, but, but I love Iowa Speedway. Uh, one of the tracks I was disappointed that NASCAR wasn't visiting this year. Uh, but let's move on to the ARCA West. Uh, the next race for the ARCA West is the Napa Auto Parts Colorado 150, uh, and that's going to be at Colorado National Speedway July the 31st, 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, which I believe is going to be, uh, I want to say, 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That is going to be available on Track Pass for the NBC Gold members. So you'll be able to watch that event on TrackPass. By the way, if you're not a TrackPass member, 
you can go to ARCAracing.com. They have a radio playing there that will go through the entire race with you. So you can still listen to what's happening. Uh, They also have Race Center where you can follow along with what's happening at the track. So uh, they've got fewer races in, but they've got more racing to do. So let's talk about the standings for the ARCA West. Well, if we're going to talk about a close series, the ARCA West is a very perfect example of that. Obviously, there are only three races in, but there's actually a tie atop the standings right now between Todd Souza and Dean Thompson. Actually, neither of them have won a race. Uh, Souza and Thompson have finished, or well, actually, Souza has three top tens. Thompson has two with a pole. He has led 144 laps, but neither of them have visited victory lane. Uh, Cole Moore is one point off the lead in third with a pair of top five finishes, but again, no wins. And the youngster, Jesse Love, is currently fourth. He is the first driver in the standings with a victory. He does have one DNF, which is currently keeping him two points off the lead, but he is my pick to win the championship. He appears to be the fastest car to this point. And then rounding out the top five, we have Jake Drew, who sits eight points out. He's actually in a tie with Trevor Huddleston for that spot. Both of those drivers have a pair of top ten finishes, with Drew also picking up a top five in a pole award. Okay. And then it's uh, Paul Pedrincelli, uh Joey East, Bridget Burgess, and Bobby Hillis, Jr. Uh, and, and, again, we talked about, you know, some of these series, there's 30 points uh, between first and second. This series is 30 points from 11th, which is Takuma Koga, to first. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a close series, and I'm I'm interested to see how this series develops because uh, touching on Jesse Love again, uh, with, he has been a dominant car in the two races where he hasn't uh, DNF. He got the one win, and he's – I mean, he hasn't led a ton of laps, but he has been one of the fastest cars on track every time he's been out there. And he's still just two points off the lead with a DNF on his uh, mark so far. So I'm interested to see when they get back to action – uh, if he's able to start dominating, or if this still uh, stays close. Because right now, this is one of the more tightly contested series I've ever seen, even through just three races. Yeah, the two, the two drivers that won the other two races of the three races they've run are Ty Gibbs and Chase Briscoe. Those guys were obviously, that was at uh, Sonoma Raceway and also Phoenix City season opener. So uh, that really kind of threw the points off for a little bit until the third race of the season uh, when Jesse Love was able to kind of uh, uh, come up with that win and uh, kind of uh, make it a little more interesting here in the West without having any of the other drivers uh, from the other series uh, participating. Yeah, I think uh, it would have been pretty difficult to beat Chase Briscoe, even at a track that he hadn't had any experience at Sonoma. I mean, a cup driver versus an Arco West Series field is going to be pretty difficult. And then Ty Gibbs just wiping the floor of the field at Phoenix, not surprising. Uh, but it was good to see an Arco West regular get a win in the third race of the season. And hopefully we get a little more of that when the series returns to action. I'd love to see this battle at the top continue to rage. And I think Sousa Thompson more love and drew would like to see the checkered flag a little more often as well yes indeed so uh there's a lot to look forward to in all of these races 
Uh, we also want to mention the NASCAR Truck Series. They did not race this weekend. Uh, their next race is going to be at Watkins Glen International after the Olympic break. Uh, it will be at 1230 Eastern, uh, Saturday, August the 7th, with the green flag at around 12.42 p.m. Eastern, televised on Fox Sports 1. So uh, that's going to be the next race for the Truck Series, uh, and fans will definitely want to tune in because um, these guys are coming up to the end of their regular season. Yeah, they're definitely getting there uh, pretty quickly, just two races left in the regular season. And uh, the truck series is always a tightly contested one. I mean, only 10 trucks getting into the playoffs. And obviously, Grant Enfinger not being eligible throws a bit of a wrench in things. So right now, you've got Chandler Smith and uh, Derek Krause and the Bill McAnally, number 19, battling for the last spot. Um, and I think Watkins Glen is going to be a good track for a lot of these guys. Um, you got some veterans who still don't have wins. I mean, Matt Crafton's still winless. Stuart Friesen's still winless. Zane Smith's still winless. Grant Enfinger, not playoff eligible, but is still winless. Uh, could be an opportunity for one of those guys to grab a victory. Uh, also, the 26th truck of Tyler Ingram. He's actually 44 points out right now, sitting 12th in the standings. But he was a very strong truck at Coda. Uh, he does have some uh, previous road course success. So if he's able to run top five or possibly even grab himself a win at Watkins Glen, lock himself into the playoffs, he'd be a very happy camper. Uh, personally, I'm absolutely dreading this three-week Olympic break. I just want to see some racing on TV, and that's a long time to wait, i got to say. <laughs> well, there's always ARCA racing. There's uh, still ARCA racing you going right. on during this <laughs> Olympic break. So we'll have to uh, tune in to those. If you haven't watched them, they, they are fun to watch. Uh, and uh, I would really encourage everybody to, to take this opportunity, if you're missing the racing from the NASCAR ranks, uh, tune in to the Arkham Menard Series East and West. Uh, they put on a pretty good show. Okay. I agree. Mass TV is a great resource. <laughs> it, it is a great uh, – they do great coverage at Mass TV. All right, uh, let's go ahead now and move on to the Xfinity Series. We're a few minutes ahead of ourselves, but that's okay. Uh, we'll get into the Xfinity Series at New Hampshire. They race Saturday, July the 17th at uh, New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Christopher Bell cruises to victory at New Hampshire and gives the number 54 team its eighth win of the season. Cal Bish used up his eligibility for this year. He went five for five in that car. Ty Gibbs had the week off. He's had wins in the the number 54 car in the Xfinity Series. Uh, They combined for seven victories. but uh, it was Christopher Bell driving that car this weekend, and he also took it to victory lane. Uh, again, in dominating performance, he picked up the wins Saturday in the Xfinity Series race at New Hampshire Motor Speedway, leading 151 laps, and has now cruised to victory in all three of his Xfinity Series starts at New Hampshire. That's amazing, uh, because it's not an easy track to race that. Uh, so for him to have three victories and in, in three starts and three wins is amazing. 
uh, that win is his 17th of his career and the first in his many starts this season. Uh, Justin Algauer in the number seven finished second, earning his third runner-up finish in the last six races. Daniel Hemrick places third, Austin Sindrick in fourth, and Harrison Burton rounds out the top five. Then it was Justin Haley, Myatt Snyder, Josh Berry, Brett Moffitt, and Riley Earps making it into the top ten uh, for this particular race. Bell won both of the stages. He now leads the series in career stage wins with 31. That's amazing. Uh, there was, because, yeah, that's amazing because he's a part-time driver. There were five lead changes among four drivers, five questions for 28 yellow flag laps, and the average speed of the race was 102.031 miles per hour. Uh, now, that was his 17th victory in 76 starts for Bell, his first victory in first top 10 this year in the series, the third victory and third top 10 finish in four races at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Justin Algar posting his seventh top 10 finish in 11 races at New Hampshire and his 11th top 10 finish this year. Daniel Hemrick in third, posting his first top 10 finish in four races at New Hampshire. Josh Berry, who finished eighth, was the highest finishing rookie. And uh, I won't get into the points. I'm going to leave that for uh, Owen to get into here in a few minutes. But what, do you, what were your thoughts about this race? Well, when I saw Christopher Bell entered as the uh, driver of the 54, I immediately knew that the Xfinity Series field was in for a, uh, a whooping, simply put. Uh, Bell, like you said, the stats don't lie. He has just been dominant at this track in the Xfinity Series. Uh, pretty sure he won in both 2018 and 2019 there in the number 20, if I'm not mistaken. But he has been a force at New Hampshire. Uh, he needed some practice for the, the Cup Series race and the Xfinity race. And uh, he definitely showed off his skills in that 54. Just because it's the best uh, car on the grid or one of the best cars on the grid doesn't mean it, ta- it doesn't take skill to drive that thing to the front and keep it there all race. Uh, another dominating performance by Bell. Uh, but the name I'm really looking at right now also, uh, Josh Berry finishing eighth in that number one car for JR Motorsports, uh, st- uh, standing in for Michael Annette, who is out with an injury right now. Uh, it's just great to see Josh Berry continue to get opportunities. Uh, I-, I don't think he dreamed of how impressive his run in the number eight would be. I mean, getting the win at Martinsville and just consistently being competitive. Uh, he's quickly turning into a fan favorite, and I love watching the guy race, so. It's awesome to see him get another opportunity. I hate that it comes at the expense of Michael Annette, but uh, Barry's really impressing me. Uh, just continuing to improvise, getting in different cars seemingly every single week, and finding a way to run in the top ten and running competitively. Yes, indeed, and that's a great catch. I know Riley Earps uh, is kind of on that bubble as well. He needed a good run, and uh, for him to come up with a top ten uh, was a really big deal as well. Uh, especially considering he's in the championship car from last year. So uh, I, I look for him to continue to have good runs as the season continues. Everything was new for him at the beginning, uh, but now he's going to be, I think, he's getting the hang of it, and we're going to see better runs from him. 
Yeah, Riley Herbst is also in an interesting position right now because of uh, what I previously mentioned with Michael Annette. I mean, Annette has missed the last two races, and right now he sits 11th in points, and he had a relatively large cushion before he had the injury, but now after missing two races, he's only 32 points ahead of Herbst, and they have uh, Myatt Snyder in between them, but Snyder already with a win at Homestead is locked into the playoffs. So if Herbst is able to get himself past Michael Annette, he could sneak into the playoffs even after a bit of an underwhelming start to the season. Uh, he will have to fend off uh, Brandon Brown, who's only nine points behind him right now in that 68 car. He's always a feisty competitor. But you're right, Herbst is definitely starting to get the hang of things. And I think Stuart Haas as a whole is starting to turn things on if the cup race is any indication. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I think that the, the race for the playoffs is going to be incredible. I mean, looking at – Jeremy Clements, the Cinderella story right now in that 51 car. Uh, he is, for a lack of better words, probably hoping that Michael Annette stays injured a little bit longer because he is just building a bigger <laughs> and bigger cushion on that playoff spot. And anybody that he can leap over, he's going to be a, a happy camper. Okay. Since you've, you've kind of gone from the bottom up here, you want to kind of continue on the point standings here? Oh, for sure, yeah. I'll keep going up, actually, from where I was. So, at that bubble, we've got Brandon Brown in 14th. He currently sits 41 points behind Michael Annette, which does sound like a pretty large gap. But, again, if Annette misses another race or two, that gap will close really, really quickly. And then it could be a three-way battle between Annette, Riley Herbst, and Brandon Brown. Herbst in 13th is currently 32 points behind Annette for that final playoff spot. Myatt Snyder sits... Well, got the win at Homestead in the second race of the season to lock himself into the playoffs, or third race of the season, excuse me, to lock himself into the playoffs. Keep in mind, Owen, if I can just interrupt for just a minute. Keep in mind, he's already requested and been granted a waiver for the playoffs. So, yeah, he's still in as of now, but Herbst and Brown are gaining on him quickly. And I don't know, I mean, one more race that he misses, and they're going to be on his tail. Uh, he had a pretty large cushion before missing the last two races. But even with the waiver, uh, he's going to need to return soon, I think. Uh, they have, I'm trying to calculate here, uh, four races until the playoffs begin. And he's probably sweating a little bit now, knowing that Herbst and Brown are starting to gain on him. And another car not to sleep on, uh, that 39 of Ryan Sieg in 16th. Uh, he got off to a slow start this season, but the Ford camp as a whole is starting to turn things on. And Sieg was a playoff driver last season. Uh, he is 16th right now. He's 75 points out of the playoffs. But he's traditionally been pretty good at the larger tracks, at the super speedways. Wouldn't be surprised to see him get a win here in the next few weeks. Uh, it would be an upset for sure, but certainly not the most surprising thing I've ever seen. But we'll keep moving up the standings. Uh, Jeremy Clements in 10th. I did touch on him a little bit. 19 starts, six top 10 finishes, an average finish of 14.8, which is better than drivers such as Brandon Jones, Noah Gregson, and Riley Herbst. He has been extremely impressive this year. He's really kept the car clean. He's finished every single race that he has started. Uh, that's a number that's going to keep you in the playoffs, regardless of how good your car is. Uh, he has a 40 or a 50-point edge over Riley Herbst at the moment. Uh, Brandon Jones is ninth, still no wins on the year, but seven top fives. He has had six DNFs, though, which has been his downfall this season. He's been very good when on track, 
but he just hasn't been very consistent, which has caused him to slide down a little bit. Noah Gregson, kind of the same situation. He sits eighth in the standings, very similar numbers to Brandon Jones. CNFs, uh, six top uh, five, ten top tens, just ahead of Jones in the standings. Uh, Gregson has led 106 laps and grabbed an abundance of stage points. Uh, Justin Haley in seven, he did miss the race at Dover uh, due to an issue with COVID protocols, but he is back in the car. Uh, 12 top tens, which is tied for second in the series, and an average finish of just better than 13th. Uh, keeping moving up, uh, Haley's college racing teammate, Jeb Burton, is sixth. He got the win at Talladega. Uh, 589 points, an average finish above 11. And he is the other driver, aside from Clemens, who has finished every single race that he has started. So Jeb Burton really taking great care of that number 10 car this year. Another Burton up in fifth, Harrison Burton, uh, 615 points, very well clear of the cut line, even without a win. He would need a catastrophic collapse to miss the playoffs at this point. Uh, but 12 top 10 finishes, six top five finishes, average finish of 13.5 for him in the number 20. Uh, moving on up to Justin Allgaier, you mentioned his three runner-up finishes in the last six races. He does have two wins, uh, eight top fives and 11 top tens. Finished all but two races, another solid year for the number seven. Daniel Hemrick, oh, man, I, he's got to get a win at some point, right? Uh, I, I keep <laughs> right. saying that, but, yeah, at some point it has to happen. Uh, he's still third in points, but still without a win. I'm sure he'd love to get his name in that column. Uh, eight top fives, though, 12 top tens, really has been exactly what he was hoping for out of this year. He's gotten his name back on the map. He's a legit championship contender in the Xfinity Series. Uh, I would love to see him get that checkered flag just once, though. Uh, A.J. Allmendinger. The Dinger up in second, couple of wins, 11 top fives, which is second only to Austin Sendrick, 12 top tens, and an average finish of 9.4. Very impressive season for Allmendinger coming back full-time in the number 16. Uh, but nobody has had anything for Austin Sendrick in the Xfinity Series this season. Uh, this is not the Arca West, I'll tell you that. An 82-point gap between Allmendinger and Austin Sendrick, who currently leads the series points. Four wins for Sendrick, 12 top five finishes, 15 top tens. He's finished all but two races and has an average finish of 7.6, which is better than even Ty Gibbs, who has been absolutely incredible in nine Xfinity Series starts. So Sendrick pulling away in the standings uh, just has continued to be one of the best cars all year long. Yes, indeed. And, of course, the news came out this past week that Harrison Burton will be driving the 21 Woods Brother uh, Ford, and Austin Sendrick will be moving to the number two Team Penske uh, car for next season. So uh, some uh, great news for both of those Xfinity Series drivers. Oh, for sure. And I, when I saw that news, I honestly at first, I thought it said Jeb Burton, and I was a little a little confused. But then I read it again. I was like, okay, I'm still I'm still shocked, but I like the move. Harrison Burton has been a very consistent driver in the Xfinity Series for multiple years now, and getting him up in a Cup Series car, I feel like it was a long time coming. He did get the start in the 96 at Talladega, and he actually did relatively well. Uh, I'm excited to see what he can do in that 21. It's nice to see them bring up a young driver uh, who has a little more time to develop. And then Cinder getting a chance in a very, very competitive number two, replacing Brad Keselowski. Uh, I think he's going to be a legitimate threat to win a few races next year. 
I would agree with you. I think the uh, rookie uh, playoffs there are going to be uh, very interesting to watch this season. Uh, so I'm definitely looking forward to all of that. Uh, any other news in the Xfinity series? Let me just check here and see if we have any other news uh, in the Xfinity series. One more piece I wouldn't really call. I wouldn't say news, but one chase that I've been watching for the entirety of the season is Brett Moffitt's chase to try to gain enough points to make the playoffs after declaring for Xfinity points about two months into Good the point. season. Uh, yeah, he. I mean, he's at the point where there's virtually zero chance he makes it in on points, but that 0-2 car has shown a lot of speed. Uh, I think he can get a win. Uh, he only has four races to do it if he wants to get into the playoffs, but he does have a top five and seven top tens in 19 races. Uh, he's climbed from well outside the top 30 up to 22nd in points in the past couple of months. He's definitely got the speed to make up a few more spots, and he's going to be very aggressive these last four weeks to try to get himself a victory. Yeah, I think he's definitely one to watch, and it's not going to surprise me if he comes up with a win in these next four races and does make it into the playoffs. So uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, he is going to be a driver for everybody to keep their eye on in these next few weeks. Um, So uh, Sheldon Creed has his eye on the Xfinity Series for next season. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, I think he may end up being a candidate for the college number 11. Uh, that was my original thought when I saw that Justin Haley was moving up to the Cup Series with college full-time next year. I'm thinking that maybe either Zane Smith or Sheldon Creed takes the 11. I know we saw Zane Smith uh, replace Haley in that ride at Dover, uh, but Creed has a Truck Series championship, and I think that He's going to be the best uh, driver for the job. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the 11. I know there are sponsorship issues with Creed, but uh, Lee Filter's been on that number 11 for multiple years. So I'm sure if they're able to keep that sponsorship, they can bring him in and be a championship contender in the Xfinity Series. Yes, indeed. Okay, so um, uh, just a lot of really good things happening in the Xfinity Series. Uh, again, we're a few minutes ahead, but let's go ahead and go to the Cup Series because uh, they had a race at New Hampshire Motor Speedway this past weekend as well, and uh, we'll kind of cover that. The Foxwood Resorts Casino 301 at New Hampshire Motor Speedway on Sunday, July the 18th. What a shakeup. Eric Almarola. Uh, shakes up the playoff standings with a very unexpected win at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. It was a stunning victory this Sunday, and he sent shockwaves throughout the playoff standings. Uh, He held off Christopher Bell in the closing laps, and the race was cut just eight laps short of the scheduled distance because of darkness. I'm sure that's going to be something we'll be talking more about during our Hot topic segment coming up at 930. Uh, but the win was just his first win this year and first at New Hampshire Motor Speedway and the third career win. Uh, Almarola secured a position in the playoffs with that victory. And what's amazing is I think he was back, he was far back in the standings, like 27th 
and that win yeah. propelled him up into the top 16. So uh, that was a huge, huge victory for Eric Almarola. Uh Brad Keselowski finished in third place, Joey Logano, fourth, Ryan Blaney, and fifth. The next five drivers were Kevin Harvick, Kyle Larson, Ross Chastain, Alex Bowman, and Jenny Hamlin. Of course, uh, it's a little bit of an issue. Another topic we'll cover in Hot Topics. Uh, the pole center, Kyle Busch, led the field to the green under damp conditions as the light mist turned into a drizzle shortly after the green flag fell. Now, Bush led the field on lap six. He spun and hit the wall as the wet track began to lose a grip. So Bush's uh, Joe Gibbs Racing teammate, Martin Drex Jr., and Denny Hamlin also had issues in spun, but Bush's day was done, and he ended up finishing the day in 37th place. Now, the rain had set in at that point, so there was a red flag that was displayed for an hour and 41 minutes. Uh, the first stage was actually won by Ryan Blaney. The second stage by Brad Keselowski, both Team Penske teammates. Uh, there were king lead changes among 10 drivers, six cautions for 47 yellow flag laps, and uh, a few fast facts here. Again, it was uh, Almarola's third victory in 375 NASCAR Cup Series races, his first victory in third top 10 finish this year, and his first victory and fifth captain finish in 20 races at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Christopher Bell in second, posting his first top 10 finish in three races at New Hampshire in the Cup Series, his ninth top 10 finish for the year. Brad Keselowski posted his 14th top 10 finish in 22 races at New Hampshire. Chase Briscoe, who finished 27th, was the highest finishing rookie of the race, uh, and again, we'll get into the point standings here in just a few minutes. I want to get your thoughts, Owen, on the results here. Well, uh, first off, I would like to take credit for Eric Almarola's victory. As an Almarola fan myself, I think I did eat <laughs> Smithfield bacon on yesterday morning. So I'm going to take some credit for that drive because uh, it, w- it was incredible to watch. Um, I, as I said, I, I, I am an, I am a fan of Eric Almirola, and watching that race, I could tell he had a fast car, but as this year has taught me, it's not too smart to get your hopes up uh, because it seems like every time I have this season, uh, something bad has happened to him. So I was kind of just watching in silence as he kept passing people, and then eventually he was uh, passing Chris for the lead, and I, uh, that's when I really started to pay attention. And then he passed Keselowski again coming off the pit road, and that was when I started to get nervous. Uh, I was counting down the laps, and uh, that, that was insane. Uh, Eric Almarola, like you said, completely shaking up the playoff picture. And not only that, uh, he's making a lot of drivers on that cut line nervous. Uh, one of them is Austin Dillon. Yes. And I thought it was, it was very, very telling on the last few laps of that race, Austin Dillon was racing Almarola, and I think the commentators mentioned it, that he did not want another new winner because now he is out of the playoffs. If the season ended today, Austin Dillon, who is 13th in points, would not make the playoffs. He has finished all 22 races that he has ran in, and he will he would not be participating in the 16-driver playoff with Almirola, who is 23rd in points, in the playoffs. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, that is the playoff system. Um, 
but watching what happened during that race, just watching the way it developed, um, I think it is an important distinction to make that SHR and Almirola have been very good on the 750 horsepower tracks this year. Almirola finished 11th at Phoenix, uh, 6th at Richmond, 4th at Nashville. He has had some solid runs. He was in the top 15 at Dover before he lost the tire. And if not for some horrible luck, uh, he wouldn't be as low in the standings as he is right now. Among drivers who have raced in all races this season, Almirola has completed the least laps, and it's not even really close. Uh, Quinn Houff is the only driver who is within 100 of the number of laps that Almirola has run. Uh, he's just been involved wow. in so many different incidents. Yeah, he's he found a way, it seems, to um, contention in a lot of different races. He has five DNFs and plenty of other races where he's been involved in incidents. Um, so it, it really was just awesome to see him finally get something incident-free, finally able to drive to the front, and finally able to avenge uh, a career in which he's really let a lot of victories slip through his hands. In 2018, the year when he went to the round of eight, there were probably three or four different races that that 10 car could have won that he wasn't able to finish off. And he did eventually get the win at Talladega in the round of 12. Uh, he needed some help from Kurt Busch running out of fuel, but uh, he had a chance to really win a few races that year. And even in uh, twenty, even in the 2018 Daytona 500, leading on the last lap, uh, he got wrecked in the 2019 Daytona 500, wrecked in the 2020 Daytona 500, was involved in an early incident in this year's Daytona 500, so it's got to just be sweet for him to finally get back to the top. It's been a very long time since he's won a race. And I think he even said in the, post, in the post-race interview, his wife wanted to see him win on a non-super speedway track. I did as well. So <laughs> it, was cool, it was cool to see him win that race and finally get that, you know, oh, he can only win at a plate track distinction off of his back. Uh, yeah, I think um, figuratively speaking, Almirola got the monkey off his back with that one. Um, I think it was, what, Definitely. 98 races without a win or 78 races without a win for that 10 car. And also, Stuart Haas Racing's first win of the year. Uh, they have yep. had, as we've all seen, a, a trying season. It has not been the year that SHR was hoping for. And uh, even Kevin Harvick is winless. He has had a solid season by most standards, 15 top 10s, but has not visited victory at Lane after winning nine times last year. Uh, so... This was, you know, at least SHR is hoping the start of something good. Starting starting this year, who would have guessed that Eric Almarola would have a victory before Kevin Harvick this year? <laughs> yeah, I I definitely wouldn't have, and even as a, a fan of his, I I would not even come close to betting that. Um, but I also definitely wouldn't have bet that he'd be outside the top twenty five in points, uh, twenty one races into the season. I mean, Almarola is a guy who. Last year, I think he had 10 consecutive top 10 finishes during the summer. He was in the top 10 in points for the entirety of the season, essentially. And, I mean, he kind of faded down the stretch, ended up getting knocked out in the round of 12. Um, but I, I, I don't think it could have been foreseen that he would have this rough of a season. So it's almost, uh, I guess you could say, destiny that he would win now as opposed to in 2019 or 2020 when he actually had a playoff car. Um it was just crazy to see him drive to the front. And it seems like perfect timing as well when the 10 to go came out uh, because Austin Dillon was going to hold Almirola up, and he did, and Bell was actually gaining. And right when the 10 came out, 
uh, it seemed like that was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel for him, and he was able to push through and get the victory. So uh, awesome racing yeah. in New Hampshire, too. Uh, that, that track produces a really great product. Um, I was seeing a lot of people complaining that there wasn't going to be PJ1 down on the track. A lot of, a lot of people saying that it was going to be a one-lane racetrack, no passing. Uh, but it was anything but. I mean, those guys were passing each other all over the place. Um, yes, they were. But it's also a track you have, you have to work to pass people there. It's not going to come to you. You have to take it. And I, I really think it is a driver's racetrack. It's a, it's a difficult track to master, but it's a track that good drivers figure out, and the good drivers usually rise to the top at New Hampshire. And and a driver, you need patience at uh, oh yeah New Hampshire Motor Speedway uh, because it does take that steady pace. Okay, let's go ahead and hit the point standings before we run out of time because uh, as you kind of referenced already. Uh, this is a big shakeup, and if, if anything can happen, I think, at this point, and, and Eric Amarola has proved that somebody from the bottom can win and uh, jump into that top 16. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do this one just a little bit differently just because of how different the playoff picture is or how confusing it is. I'm going to go kind of in order of what the playoff picture looks like by wins. So we got Kyle Larson with four wins, Martin Truex Jr. and Alex Bowman with three wins, Kyle Busch and Chase Elliott with two wins. Now, mathematically speaking, those are the only five drivers that have actually clinched a playoff spot. Um, Even Denny Hamlin, who has 874 points and is actually leading the regular season points, uh, could get knocked out of the playoffs if we get four more unique winners and Hamlin is no longer the regular season points leader. Uh, But the drivers with one win, William Byron, Joey Logano, Ryan Blaney, Brad Keselowski, Kurt Busch, Christopher Bell, Michael McDowell, and now Almirola. And another driver that Almirola's win actually helped was Michael McDowell, because now if we do get more than 16 winners, or if we do get 16 winners and Hamlin is the regular season champion, McDowell would likely not be the driver who is bumped from the playoffs. It would be Almirola. Almirola still has 71 points to make up on McDowell with just four races to do it. Um, but looking at the drivers point. who do not, yeah, to catch him in points, he would have to make up 71 points in four races. And that would be essentially for the guy, the odd man out. If there do happen to be, 16 winners plus Hamlin winning the regular season championship, or if we do end up with 17 different winners, it's likely that one of those two guys would be the one that gets bumped out. Um, But looking at the guys who do not have wins that are currently in the playoffs, uh, it's starting to get to slim pickings in terms of getting into the playoffs on points. Uh, Denny Hamlin, like I mentioned, currently first in points, but still without a win, 11 top fives, 15 top tens, just incredible numbers all across the board. Still without a victory, though. Uh, Kevin Harvick, 10th in points. Who would have thought he'd be without a win? Uh, nine wins last year, but he has zero right now. Also 15 top tens, tied for the series lead in that number. For just six top fives, just 105 laps led. He just hasn't had the pace to win races this year, really. Um, he has kept the car pretty clean, though, finishing all but one of his races. And right now, the final car in on points is the eight of Tyler Reddick. Reddick just missed out on the playoffs as a Cup Series rookie last year. And 
he's having a very impressive season. He got off to a very sluggish start through the first four or five races, but 11 top 10s in 22 races. That number is higher than drivers like Brad Keselowski, Austin Dillon, Kurt Busch, Christopher Bell, and the same number actually as Martin Truex and Ryan Blaney. So it's been a very good season for the eight car. He's been a top 10 threat essentially every week for the past three months. Um, but he has right now just a five-point edge on his teammate Austin Dillon for that final spot. If we don't get enough unique winners or if Reddick and Dillon don't win a race, that is likely going to be the battle for the final playoff spot as Harvick is close to 100 points ahead of that battle. So Reddick and Dillon, again, separated by just five points. They're 12th and 13th in points, but right now they are the two that are right on the bubble. Behind them, there's a pretty big gap to Chris Busher in the Roush Fenway 17. And Busher's a guy who I almost feel bad for because about a month ago, it looked like he was almost a sure thing to make the playoffs. And mm-hmm. even now, he's 16th in points. Uh, if, if there weren't a bunch of crazy things happening, he would be in the playoffs. He's 16th in points right now. But uh, as things currently stand, he has to make up 121 points on Tyler Reddick or more likely get a win get into the playoffs he has shown speed at uh super speedway so he's going to be a guy i'm looking out for at daytona uh behind busher you've got matt de benedetto and ross chastain two other guys who have shown super speedway speed that i wouldn't be too surprised to see up front at daytona uh de benedetto is 144 points or 143 points off of that off of reddick and chastain is 144 out so they both have a lot of work to do And then it goes back to a few other guys who are going to have to get extremely aggressive and almost certainly go for wins. So you've got Bubba Wallace in 20th, Ricky Stenhouse in 21st, and Daniel Suarez in 22nd. They are not mathematically eliminated from getting in on points, but the chance of it happening is about one in a million. Uh, They are almost (laughs) certainly going to need a win in the next four races to get themselves into the playoffs. And then you have Almirola, and that just shows uh, how shocking that win was, is how many non-playoff drivers Eric Almirola is behind when you look at the standings. I mean, he's 23rd in points. He's behind Daniel Suarez, behind Ricky Stenhouse, behind Bubba Wallace. Um, but that win is getting him in right now. And, and uh, mm-hmm. he's tied, actually, with Chase Briscoe in points. Uh, Briscoe, who many would say has had an underwhelming rookie season, just two top tens and 22 starts, but him and Almirola are actually tied in points right now. Uh, and then behind him, Eric Jones. Yeah, it is shocking. And Briscoe uh, has actually really outperformed Cole Custer in the 41. I mean, he has actually built a 40-point edge on Custer, who is 28th in points. Uh, he seems to be the one SHR car that hasn't really seen much improvement at all these past few weeks. Uh, Almirola, Harvick, and Briscoe have each had a few decent runs. Uh, but Jones, Eric Jones, Ryan Priest, Ryan Newman, Cole Custer, Corey LaJoy, and Anthony Alfredo round out the top 30, uh, those being the guys that would be actually locked in with a win. Uh, beyond them, Josh Balicki, James Davison, Quinn House, uh, they would actually have to get into the top 30 even with a win. Amazing, amazing. Uh, this has been, I think, one of the more interesting uh, regular seasons uh, that I've seen with so many different winners. And then drivers like yeah. Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin who don't have a win. 
And tell, yeah, the thing I think is also interesting, oh, we're already at 830, uh, Tyler Reddick and Austin Dillon being teammates. Uh, we've been saying that Tyler Reddick is motivating Austin Dillon and kind of making him a better driver, I think, at that RCR organization. Uh, but uh, here they are, uh, you know, above and below the cut line. It's just an amazing season and very, very interesting. But it is also 9.30 p.m. Eastern time, which means that uh, we're going to have to call it a day on our pre a review part of the show and uh, get on with our NASCAR Hot Topic sound off uh, with our fan for racing crew here. So uh, joining us now, Owen, is uh, let's start with uh, Tommy. Welcome to the show, Tommy. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to have you here. And also joining us is Jay Huseman. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Sharon. And I just got one question for Owen. How many times did she call you Jay or Sal? <laughs> Surprisingly, that did not happen. I actually was correctly named Sake the entire time, so I was very pleased with it. <laughs> really? Sharon's good. on top yeah. of her game tonight. <laughs> Impressive. How about it? All right. Um, so, Jay, since uh, since you spoke up there and called me out on my name, uh, I'm going to have you kind of lead us off here, but I'm going to have you lead us off with our fantasy racing group and give us an update on how everybody is standing right now. All right. Let me load that real quick. Uh, I know, I don't know if I had the Xfinity, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the Xfinity results in yet, but I know the trucks and there we go tracking all right we'll go to the uh, truck series that one they were off um for the weekend so that one didn't change from the last couple of weeks why won't it let me sort them okay give me one second i'm going to pull them back up onto my other sheets okay i apologize um no that's all right uh, get them. I know I got them on screenshots uh, before I load them. So, okay, for the truck series, uh, Sharon leads that one 59 to 58 over Andy. Mike at 53. I'm at 52. Tommy at 49. Owen 47. Sam 36, and then James 34. So we got a 25 point gap there. The Xfinity going into the weekend. Uh, Andy had a one point lead over Mike, uh, 70 to 69, but I know that Mike did have the winner, so he is up to 77 points, and I don't think I had calculated the rest in. Uh, Sam was at 65, James 64, Jay 63, Owen and Sharon at 59, Tommy at 54. So that one I got to get updated uh, yet. And then the Cup Series, that one I got the new updated ones. This one has changed again. Sam is now the points leader at 113. I'm at 112. Mike dropped back to third at 103. Owen at 95 along with Sharon at 95. You guys like to stay tied. A couple of series there. Uh, Tommy at 89. James 84. And Andy at 47. That one, there's a bigger gap uh, due to... um, 
Andy is riding Chase Briscoe, and he's getting getting better, getting him more points. Now, for the overall total, I skipped. No, I did the Xfinity. The overall total, that one, I got to go to the actual page. That is right now at Mike at 233. I'm at 227. Sam at 214. Sharon at 213. Owen at 201. Tommy 192. James 182. And Andy 175. And so there it's a 52 point top to bottom uh, overall, which again, we're getting ready to trucks. One more race and we go into playoff points for them. That's 14 points per race. Uh, nobody's got nothing locked down at this point. Yeah, double points in the playoffs is going to uh, maybe help some of us that need a little bit of help. <laughs> okay. Know, uh, so, okay. I was going to say, Mike, wanted... Mike is the one that need, needs help right now. He had, he had kind of a rough weekend with the exception of that Xfinity Series pickup. Oh. Well, he's still in the lead, though. Right. By by okay. two points. <laughs> by two points. Okay, so Tommy, uh, let's go ahead and have you kick us off with the first hot topic tonight, and then we'll go to Jay, Owen, and myself. Let's go with the Nashville, Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway having its largest crowd, and it's the SRX finale as well. Okay, Jay, you can kick us off with your comments about that. I love to see it. I'm excited about it, but I also don't want uh, anything to get read too deeply into it. The SRX is a new series. We've seen that. Fans seem to be behind that, at least for the time being. We've talked about this on many things. Of the dry, or Fans want to see it. They get it. year or two, it goes away. And I know this is why certain tracks, such as Iowa Speedway, they wanted races, racing there, but the interest didn't last long term, and NASCAR has to do something else. And I know this is separate from NASCAR, but NASCAR is trying to get into that market of the Nashville Fairgrounds. So there's some concern there, but just for this event, that was great to see, and hopefully that is some leverage or indication of NASCAR saying, hey, this is what we can do on an even bigger, better scale, but as we've heard from some of the uh, feedback from, from the neighborhood and the community, that maybe that's not what they want. So kind of got to still play it by ear. I, I, it's great to see. I'm glad the SRX did, uh, did so well. I know they're already talking about future plans and maybe changing up the tracks. There's a couple of tweets out there. I think uh, Tommy was one of them. I responded to his, uh, as well as Michael Waltrip and SRX. Uh, so they're already making plans for the future. I think they got a great thing, and I think they can make it even better. So we'll see what happens with the future of it. But for the first year out the gate, I think they did an awesome job with it. Okay. Owen, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm kind of with Jay on this for the most part. I think that going to the Nashville Fairgrounds, I think, is something that NASCAR would love to do. And I think seeing how the Superstar Racing Experience handled that situation uh, getting a great crowd in there and really reaching into that market. I think they could take uh, note of what the SRX did. Um, but the difference is that SRX is largely a, you know, short track grassroots racing series, whereas NASCAR is larger. It's a more corporate, bigger track, bigger city, bigger market type of series. 
And the fact that they're already going to National Speedway or Super Speedway does say that they want to get into that national market. Um, and I, I guess what's stopping them from doing like a National Fairgrounds, National Speedway doubleheader in the future? I don't know. I guess it could happen. Uh, they could also swap out one national date for a fairgrounds date and put two Nashville dates on the schedule like they do with Bristol now. Um, it could happen. Uh, but again, like Jay said, you want that interest to stay long-term. You don't want to start going to a track where the interest is going to die out after a year or two, and then you're left with a half-filled racetrack and an angry community that didn't want the race there in the first place. So I guess it's just something where you have to feel it out. Uh, maybe if the SRX goes there again and they get a similar result, I think NASCAR will tap into it if that happens, though. Yeah, I have to agree with you guys as well. Uh, I think it was really good to see uh, the largest crowd in 25 years at uh, Nashville Fairground Speedway. And uh, I think it does show that, uh, you know, there is interest in the racing. But to Jay's point as well, it's it's not racing fans that uh, we're going to have to convince or NASCAR's going to have to convince in this particular case. It's the na- people in the neighborhood. Uh, the residents are not too happy about having the NASCAR uh, contingent uh, abound on their city. So uh, I guess that is the issue that's kind of holding all of this up. And uh, uh, it, it's confusing to me because it, if you have people come in and spend their money in a place like Nashville where there are so many things to see and do in addition to the racing, uh, that's going to lower the taxes for the residents within the community. Um, so it, there are some benefits for them uh, to have, you know, all of these people descend on their city and, and they're going to spend money on food, on uh, sightseeing and, and all kinds of other things. So, um, but I was happy to see it. I thought the SRX for their six races uh, this season did a fabulous job. And uh, I did see Marcus Lamonis on Twitter today asking fans to get back with them about what new tracks they might like to see on the, on the circuit for next year. So I'm kind of curious to see uh, the results of that question uh, for uh, the SRX series for next year. So, Tommy, what are your thoughts? Um, first, I mean, the SRX series was awesome. Can't wait for next year. Um, but what I saw was the fact that the community was out there at Nashville. I mean, that race was packed. Um, I understand what you guys are saying about you don't want to go continue to go back and the race will be half empty seats and everything, but I think it was a good sign that NASCAR should still continue to pursue Nashville Fairgrounds. Um, They want more short tracks. I definitely think they need to add some. Um, So, I mean, if they're going to make Bristol dirt, they're losing those short track there. So, I mean, they've got to add another one to the series. I know Auto Club's coming in. Uh, We'll see how that works out. But um, it'd be nice to have another one, I guess, back in North Carolina, Virginia, or Tennessee. but yeah, it was it was awesome. Um, I hope that the SRX goes back there next year. I'm really excited to see where they go next year. I, I really would want to see them go to Slinger. I said North Wilkesboro if they can get that track revamped up and redone. 
Uh, I'd like to see them go back to Nashville Fairgrounds. And then, I mean, everybody's been saying Bowman Gray. I've seen South Boston come up a few times, Five Flags. I mean, there's a bunch of options. But, yeah, it was an awesome series. I'd love to see who their, the drivers will be next year. But what I took away was great series, and Nashville Fairgrounds should be pursued by NASCAR. Okay. Jay, your follow-up. Well, I'd have to go back and look at uh, look at Tommy's tweet. I don't remember seeing Schlinger on there, but I, I joked with him about as far as trying to keep all these tracks in the southeast. I think the, the SRX is one that has that freedom to go and test certain markets and give an indication, as we've said. You don't want to go full bore based off of the SRX series, but get an indication. I, I threw out Elko Speedway uh, in Minnesota, uh, Schlinger being over in Wisconsin. You know, five flags, having a full a cup race possibly there. I know we lost at one point had the Memphis market. Uh, we lost that as far as the Xfinities and trucks. And I think that they're still evaluating whether or not they should go back there as the Arkham, Arca series, Arkham and Ard Series East has uh, still continued to be a presence there. And they've talked about that. So I think these are ones that we can see that. The one thing I will say with appeasing or pleasing the community uh, when it comes to bringing an, a race to the fairgrounds. I know there were several things that were discussed and uh, mufflers being put on them. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see NASCAR give up something that their sport is built on. Now, longer races versus shorter races. Being that we're at a short track area uh, race, bumping it down. We've seen that of even some of the bigger tracks in the past, especially if they do the two-day, two like at Pocono, cutting down the laps. When we go to dirt tracks, they go to heat races and a, a main event feature. I'm okay with them adjusting that. Uh, and the other thing I know I think was they discussed was a curfew, which I think that would be fine too. If we got to get in by a certain time, start the race at a particular time, and if they have a 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, whatever it is, uh, I've been at some tracks of that. You know, the drivers know it ahead of time, this many laps, or we hit this time limit. It's all based on you and your performance. That always adds an actual interesting uh, element to it, kind of like we saw, and we'll talk about here on a different topic, of cutting a race short. So uh, there are some options that NASCAR is willing to work with. I hope there's some, though, that they don't give in, and such as putting mufflers on the cars, I would be severely against that. <laughs> Okay, Owen, your thoughts? I think if we're going to, this is somewhat off the topic, but also somewhat related as well. I think if we're going to talk about uh, markets that NASCAR should test, uh, this kind of relates to a map that I saw the other day where it was basically a location of all the tracks that NASCAR uses with circles drawing, I think, a 100-mile perimeter from all those tracks to show all the markets that they currently cover. And the one state on the East Coast that did not have a single piece of any of those circles in it was West Virginia. And I can tell you for a fact, there are plenty of racing fans in West Virginia. Um, there aren't a ton of current speedways in the state that are NASCAR ready. Um, that, I don't think, takes a ton of research. But if they're going to test a state, if they're going to test a market, if SRX is going to be the guinea pig for it, I would love to see them go to one of those small dirt tracks in West Virginia beef it up a little bit, add some bleachers, get some production into it, and see what they can do. Because there are some fans out there that will 
flock to the racetrack, not just from town, but from hours in any direction. Uh, West Virginia loves their racing. Okay. Interesting uh, thoughts there. Uh, yeah, I think the SRX, again, I thought it was uh, very successful this year. Uh, and if they are a test market, uh, there are a number of tracks uh, that uh, you guys bring up that would be really good tracks for them to uh, look into. I, w- I would like to see them. I don't think they had any road courses. I would like to see them go on a road course next year. Do you think that's a possibility, Tommy? You're I'd like to see why not. I'd like to see them go to the place where John Hunter Nemechek and Cole Huster battled it out a couple of years ago with that awesome finish. Um, was that Canadian Tire Park, I think? But um, yeah, I like I like the SRX and how they went to the local short tracks, and I think that. The reason why it was a big hit, I guess this might be my opinion, but your local people can tune in and the race is actually local. So, I mean, it's kind of like community involved. It's almost like when NASCAR goes to Darlington, basically. Like, that whole city is all about, like, those two races that year, that one race that year. I mean, it's kind of a big deal. So, I think it was awesome that the SRX did that. The Rock was also a... um, Another track that I mentioned that they could go back to. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, just I loved it. Uh, maybe they should do more than six racetracks. Maybe they should do more than six races. Because it was a lot of fun, oh, okay. and it was nice seeing the, the older people out there. I'd love to see them bring it back. But um, I do think that it was a good indication that NASCAR could ex- should pursue Nashville Fairgrounds. Or at least oh. the trucks are going to be there for a race. There you go. Okay, Jay, what's our next hot topic? Well, let's see. Let's go with uh, NASCAR's decision to start the race when they did, uh, and we have an issue from the get-go. Kyle Busch, obviously the most unhappy with it, of having started that race under, and I don't, I don't want to say rain, but damp conditions, and we had rain then within nine laps, and it caused the problem. Yeah. Uh, on your thoughts? Yeah, probably uh, not the greatest decision on NASCAR's part to start the race. I, I was watching the start of the race, and I was kind of saying to myself, it looks like it's raining. Uh, and I was a bit surprised that they actually threw the green flag, and then I think I looked away from the screen for about two seconds, and I looked back uh, and saw Kyle Busch uh, in the fence. So, yeah, definitely a lack of uh, oversight by the NASCAR officials on that one. Uh, they they should have either delayed the start of the race or uh, if, you know, the TV networks would allow an earlier start, that would be great too, um, especially for tracks like New Hampshire that don't have lights. Uh, not, not to say that NASCAR made the right decision, but I do think their hands were a bit forced uh, by the fact that they had to start at 3.30. Um, that sunset was at 8.20 yesterday, and that ended up becoming a factor in the race as well. And like I said, New Hampshire doesn't have lights. So if they were able to start the race at 1 or maybe at 2, and they were able to get, you know, 100 laps in, and then it gets delayed, then it's less of a problem. You actually have enough time to finish it without really having to worry about it. It, it just seemed like the entire 
uh, track drying process, and even the starting of the race was just a little bit rushed because they felt as if they almost had their hands tied uh, by the start time of the race and the little time that they had. Tommy, your thoughts? I wasn't really sure why they started the race um, either. Um, I saw where all the drivers were complaining to their crew chiefs, basically, that, you know, hey, don't don't let the green flag happen, the track's wet, Kyle Busch being one of them. I think Denny Hamlin was in on it, Martin Truex. No, it was Martin Truex. Martin Truex and Kyle Busch were the ones that were saying it was raining and Brad Kozlowski, and they did it anyway. Um, Kyle Busch's comments were kind of funny after the fact. I mean, he got out of his car, and he's like, I can't even say what I want to say, basically. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, they just – I feel like that is the third race this year, that and Coda and Daytona where NASCAR just, I mean, I get the Daytona 500. You want to get the big race in on Sunday, like everything. But it practically rained all day. I mean, I feel like that race ended late this year, at like past midnight maybe. I mean, it's, it's just, just call the race and postpone it to Monday. Um, they did it with Bristol Dirt because they had to. And, I mean, I think Bristol still had good ratings even for a Monday. So, I mean, I was I was even prepared to take off Monday for Daytona, Talladega, Bristol, like all those big races. I'm prepared to take Monday off if I have to to watch the race. So I mean, it wasn't worth it. And then I also thought like the All Star race with Jeff Gordon, but I know they're not bringing backup cars. But they, I mean, they should have admitted that they made a mistake and that they shouldn't have called the green flag and that. I mean, they owe it to Kyle Busch and the other guys that wrecked their cars on the first lap, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, I'm i kind of back and forth on this one in my mind. I'm kind of having a little battle, if you will, uh, because I, I know from having worked in a corporation that there are so many different factors that have to be taken into consideration for these kinds of events. And um, uh, they were under the gun with the 3.30 start time, Eastern time, to get that race in before the darkness and everything else. And everything that delayed it was making the race that much more vulnerable to going into the next day. They're getting ready to go into the two-week Olympic break. And I think they wanted to avoid that as much as they possibly could Um, because a lot of these guys, keep in mind, they know that they're going to get this next two weeks off. They're planning their vacations around this. So they're trying to do everything they can to get this race in. But at the same time, uh, the other side of my brain is saying, first time's an accident, second time's coincidence, by the third time, we've got a bad habit that has started. And, Jay, I know you're really familiar with that uh, terminology for me. Um, I I just think that these guys have made uh, a lot. There's been a lot of situations this year where the call was, was off base. And I think this was one of them where they shouldn't have called that race. Uh, they shouldn't have called the green flag for that race. Uh, there, there was a NASCAR official saying that the track was wet in, in uh, turns one and two, according to Bob Pockris, 
and that uh, there was a pause, so nobody knows what happened after that, except that NASCAR came on within seconds later saying that they were going to call the green flag and one to go. So I just think that they've got to be sitting down. NASCAR really needs to take the time to sit down and analyze these those three races in particular, Daytona, Coda, and now um, this one, New Hampshire, and and really analyze what's going on there and where the failures took place uh, because uh, it was disappointing. I mean, my favorite driver was Martin Truex Jr., and he was, he was basically out of it, too. He had to uh, really claw his way back to a 12th-place finish at the end of that race. Uh, and it was a struggle all day long. So th- there were two big drivers taken out of that race, really. Uh, and uh, I-, I know Kyle Busch didn't feel like he could say what he wanted to say, <laughs> um, but uh, I-, you- I can certainly appreciate his frustration with what happened because everybody was saying that it was wet out there, and yet NASCAR flew the green flag. There has to be a communication failure in there somewhere, uh, and that's what they need to take the time to analyze. Uh, but I understand the pressures that they were probably under as well to get this race in, and I don't know if that played a factor in this or not, but I know that a lot of times uh, those outside pressures can mean a lot. So, Jay, what are your thoughts? Well, it might be a good thing Mike's not here to respond to me tonight, but I'm going to back DW up, and I think NASCAR was attempting at this. Get the cars on the track, create the heat, because initially, when I was listening to Claire B. Lang, does dialed in, spends a lot of her time at different tracks in the industry, said this is normal at New Hampshire of a heavy mist, not necessarily rain. So if you can get the cars on the track, generate some heat, it pushes it away and will keep it away. And I think that's what NASCAR was attempting to do. Now, whether or not once it started raining, as I said, it wasn't showing up on any of the radars. It kind of, not to say it came out of nowhere, but they weren't expecting a heavy rain like they got, and it came really quick. Maybe should have thrown the caution flag a lap earlier, but... Had they started the race like that and the weather held off, they'd have been called geniuses. Great job, NASCAR. You got the race in. You fought the weather, and you won. It doesn't work, and they're on the other end of it. Uh, That's where I I feel they're in a really, really tough spot. Or they call the race off and say, we're going to run it Monday. Well, then you got the fans say, I can't stay. We got to do this. We got to adjust this. You know, they're they're in a no-win situation, it seems like, no matter what they do, unless everything works perfectly. Um, I do think that maybe the caution itself should have come a lap earlier, but I don't fault them for starting the race and at least attempting to blow it out of the area, again, if they're going by Darrell Waltrip's vortex theory. Okay, Owen, your follow-up? Yeah, I think the whole vortex theory thing is actually very interesting. I've actually, like, read a lot of things about it and I don't know how much I believe it, but I, I do actually buy that that may have been what they were trying to do uh, because the science of it does somewhat make sense. But I also, I think I read that one of the issues, I hadn't even heard this word before yesterday, but they said a weeble 
uh, came up in turns one and two, which eventually was what caused Kyle Busch to spin out, where basically the track is dry, but the car is continuing to run over it, basically forces water that was already in the pavement to come back up. And I, I don't know how that happens, but uh, they also said that, that was the reason they ran about 15 caution laps before restarting the race again, was that another one popped up in turns one and two. Um, but aside from the weather, uh, I just think that NASCAR and the TV networks have to do some kind of work, at least at the tracks that don't have lights, to try to push for earlier start times. Uh, I know that the 3 o'clock, the 2.30, the 3.30s probably work better for NBC, um, but the way it is right now, it, it's just not working. I mean, there have been too many races this year that have been affected by weather and uh, postponing to a different day is always the last resort because of the inconvenience for the drivers, the inconvenience for the teams, and the inconvenience for the fans. To mention the inconvenience for the TV network. So um, I just think that there has to be some steps that are being that are able to be taken to make sure that this doesn't happen or at least happens less. Okay. Tommy? I agree. I think the start times need to be changed. I know that they do it because, you know, well, one of the factors is for the West Coast. But, I mean, if we're starting the race at 1 o'clock here, I'm, I guess that would be 10 o'clock their time. I mean, the race would still be going at 11 or 12, and that would be lunchtime then in California. So, I mean, I feel like if people cut at the NBC thinking they're going to be getting the news, they're going to be getting the race. So maybe that would get more views. But I did want to add on the positive, too, sometimes what the rain does. They were able to get the race in, and it finished like 10 minutes before it got dark. Eric Amarola got a surprise win. So, I mean, there is the factor that sometimes the weather can make, a, I guess, a, a more entertaining race or something. But it just stinks that uh, Truex and Hamlin and Kyle Busch and all those guys were involved in a first lap crash because of rain when it shouldn't have happened to begin with and then I also wanted to add to I'm curious to see what happens with Kyle Busch since he uh, kind of got aggressive with the pace car yeah NASA said they're going to take a look at it I guess but yeah I I, I, I uh, do think it's interesting uh, Jay you bring up a good point with the vortex theory from Daryl Waltrip uh, I'm not sure that I buy it either, but I can. I do get the concept of NASCAR trying to get the cars on the track and keep the heat from the drivers being on the track, hopefully to keep it from uh, the water from developing. I guess. Um, I, I just. Uh, I just think though that there were was communication. That's the thing that bothers me is that you had people communicating to them, telling them that it wasn't just mist, that it was wet and everything else, and yet they, they went ahead and went forward. Um, and that's the part that I think they really need to take a look at because, uh, you know, when you've got that many people telling you that the track is wet, um, they need to be responsive to that as well. Uh, and I know that mist is common in that New Hampshire area. Uh, I don't know if Andy went to the race, but I really wish Andy was here and he could kind of give us a perspective on this as well um, about New Hampshire and, and the rain and, 
and uh, what to expect there. But uh, I just hope that NASCAR takes their due diligence and looks into this because whether it's justified or not, they've had three situations here this year where uh, there's been questionable calls made. And I think the fact that you've hit that third number, I think that warrants uh, some some a closer look by NASCAR. I really do, and and I hope they take the time to do that. Uh, earlier start times certainly would help, and I I understand too, Tommy, that it has to do with the West Coast. Uh, but you know, you, especially at the tracks that don't have lights, that's just not going to work. Uh, and I know this year is an exceptional year. We probably had more rain than we've had in a long time, but. At the same time, you don't want to repeat it. So, Jay, what are your final thoughts on it? Yeah, I think uh, at least on this one, uh, they may may go back and say, hey, maybe we did jump the gun and, and push a little too hard. Uh, but they make these decisions 36 times a year. Uh, the number mm-hmm. of times that they are on the wrong side of it is minimal. Now, this one, especially being that we had, uh, you mentioned Kyle Bush, an accident, Okay, you relate it to safety, especially, Sharon, you mentioned it, you know, that majority of the drivers from that aspect were saying it is too wet to start, you know, and we're not talking about call the race because I'm leading and it's raining, you know, that's a little bit different story. Um, I'm talking about starting the race that, yeah, you're getting that kind of feedback from the drivers. I understand they're in a tight box uh, as far as getting in, but then you have to go to that last result. and I think when they look back on it, maybe they will say, hey, yeah, we made a mistake or kind of regret this decision. Um, but they generally do make the best decision uh, all the way around. And you mentioned You're right. when it comes to the earlier earlier start times, yeah, they got so many things that it's not just a matter of, oh, we want to start at this time. The The TV networks who are putting up the most money want the ratings. They want the biggest market, so they're trying to include the West Coast. So, yeah, there is a lot of pressure and adjustments that go to that, but it might be that NASCAR has to say, hey, at these tracks, if we don't have lights, we got to have a window so in the event of a red flag or something like that, we aren't cutting the race itself short or, you know, ruining the product by trying to get it in a certain window. Okay. Owen, you're up for the next hot topic. All right. I think I am going to go to the now even more jumbled up playoff picture and ask of the current drivers that are outside of the playoffs, so that includes Austin Dillon, which driver is most likely to sneak a victory at Daytona or at one of these other three remaining tracks and find their way into the top 16? Okay, Jay, you get to, I'm sorry, Tommy, you get to kick this off. My my dark horse pick is going to be Ricky Stenhouse for Daytona. Um, He won Daytona and Talladega a few years ago. I feel like he's always up at the front, and I I guess I'm just going to go out and say that he's either going to win it or he's going to wreck trying to win it. So, um, but that will be my dark horse pick. But another one that I'm keeping my eye out on is still Matty D. if he wants to get a car next year, he's going to have to get a win. So he's got four races 
left to do it to get in the playoffs, and then he's got those playoff races still to get a win. And, I mean, he showed that he can get it done at Talladega. I mean, he finished second last year. So why not at Daytona as well? Um, My other pick would have been Almirola, but he's already got a win because I know he's good at super speedways as well. Eric Jones has won at Daytona, uh, so in the Bush Clash. So Bubba Wallace in the second. I mean, there's plenty of options. Plenty of options. Okay, Jay, your thoughts. Okay, I'm fairly confident I can include Mike on this to respond to Tommy's. He's either Ricky Stenhouse is either going to win it or wreck trying and say, <laughs> we know which side of that's going to happen. Um, the, yeah, Daytona itself, you could put the entire list of drivers. Ross Jastain, Matt DiBenedetto, Eric Jones, Bubba Wallace has had some good runs there. Uh, I think if you look at it over the next set of races, I think the most likely is, this is tough to say, I say Austin Dillon, he's gotten that one win a year, uh, has been running decent. However, I think overall, that Tyler Reddick has been running better, thus is obviously uh, the five points at least ahead of him in points. It seems like we see him up there more consistently. The dark horse to me is Matt Benedetto. He's good on road courses. We know the changes they're going through. He's got some pressure on him as far as uh, his performance in these last total 15 races, but it would certainly help if you were in the playoffs. So I think Matt DiBenedetto might be one, even on the road courses. Uh, so if I had to put them in order, I'd say DiBenedetto, Tyler Reddick, and then Austin Dillon. And that's not really including Daytona. Like I said, Daytona, you can make a strong argument for any one of the drivers all the way down through 30th. And one more thing, while we're on this topic, uh, Sharon, you were, we were together on Thursday night. Somebody talked about the possibility of Eric Almirola winning this race. Yeah. Well, we did talk about it. We said we were talking about it could go down as far down as Eric Almirola. Just trying to, we were talking about the possibility of somebody below the cut line winning a race uh, and putting themselves up into the top six. And Eric Almanarolo was one of those drivers that we talked about with a strong possibility of doing exactly that. Did we think he was going to do it at New Hampshire? I don't know that I necessarily thought it would be New Hampshire, but Eric Almanarolo has had that track, he said, circled on his calendar all year because he feels he's really good at those types of tracks. So he certainly thought it was going to be a possibility. And I think that goes a long way. Did you have more that you wanted to say on that? No, and and I truthfully, I I just used Eric Almirola in that case of somebody that was going to be in a position of, and I, I think I used the word desperation, but willing to risk different pitch strategy or whatever. And in this case, he had a strong car. Uh, you know, it wasn't that they did something way out of the box. He did have a strong car this weekend. Yes, he did. And it passed in section. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree with uh, Jay that if you're talking about the, uh, from, you know, 16th to 30th, could could end up getting that win. Not to mention the driver's 16th and above. Um you know, Kevin Harvick, uh, Denny Hamlin. 
there are so many possibilities uh, that could happen at Daytona, uh, and you guys have brought all of them. And who knows, Michael McDowell may come up with another victory at Daytona to give him two, uh, pushing him up in the three-point standings uh, when the playoffs begin. Uh, you know, Bubba Wallace is a good speedway racer. So there there are just so many different possibilities here uh, with what could happen at Daytona and why so many people call it the wild card. It is a wild card race. I think NASCAR knew that when they made it the last race of the of the regular season. And uh, it just gives everybody a chance. Uh, but I think it's going to be a little more... I don't know if frenzied is the word that I want to say, but people are going to be in more of a desperation mode if they haven't made it into the playoffs or if they're on the bubble of the playoffs. And it's going to, everybody's going to be going all out at this race, and it's, it's going to make it an interesting event. Owen? I think <laughs> Daytona this year is going to be absolutely wild. And I think the biggest distinction between this year's race there and last year's race at Daytona is that last year there were actually a few drivers outside the top 16 that had a shot to make it in on points. I think Jimmy Johnson, Eric Jones, and Tyler Reddick were all within like 20 or so points of the cut line going into that race. There were a few guys that didn't have to completely sell out and try to win to make the playoffs. This year, it's looking like, other than Austin Dillon, every single driver who's not in the playoffs is going to have to win. So there are going to be a good 10, 12, 14 actually competitive, decent cars that are going to be sending it off through every turn, trying to get to the front and trying to win the race. Uh, So I'm sure there's going to be a ton of wrecks, um, a ton of craziness going on up front. Um, But my... Bold prediction is that Ross Chastain wins the Indianapolis road course, and I'll tell you why. Uh, He was very, very impressive at Coda. He ran up front while it was absolutely pouring there, and I wouldn't be surprised because this season has been so weird if it just rained at Indy 2 and Chastain just drives to the front and wins it. He's been impressive lately. CGR seems to be uh, taking things up a notch. Plus, I drove past his hauler on the interstate today, so – his name kind of came to mind. So I'm going to say that Chastain, yeah, I saw his and Kurt Busch's. That was actually kind of cool. But I think uh, if anybody outside the top 16 gets a win at anywhere other than Daytona, I'm going to say Chastain. My sleeper for Daytona is Daniel Suarez in the 99. I know Trackhouse is very excited for that race uh, to open the season, and they got caught up in an early incident. But they've shown a lot of speed this year, and I think the 99 can be a sleeper as well. Okay. Uh, Tommy, your follow-up. I think Matty D can definitely get it done on the road course, too. So, um, But I was just want to stick with Stenhouse as a dark horse for Daytona. But, um, yeah, there's there's so many good options. I mean, even Newman could win at Daytona as well. I mean, he's I feel like he's been a second a few times at Dega to Ryan Blaney and somewhere else, too. So, I mean... I think they were all at Dega, actually. But either way, he's still running in the top five or ten of those tracks. So, can't count him out. Um, Yeah, Austin Dillon, I think he's good at Michigan. I think that's one of his favorite tracks. So, he could get it done there. Uh, Denny Hamlin still hasn't won yet. I mean, if we get 
three more different winners, he's not safe anymore, and he's the points leader. So I mean, and there's four races, so he might he might actually have to win at Daytona to get in. Who knows? Interesting scenario, uh, Jay. Well, uh, the one I would mention there that the mentioned Denny Hamlet, Kevin Harvick is actually the next one up on the list. You got Austin Dillon out by five points, Tyler Reddick in by five points. If we get another winner, they get pushed out. The next one that be pushed out on points, as it is right now, uh, I want to say it's like roughly 80 points uh, up is Kevin Harvick. Now, we've seen, obviously, Stuart Haas Racing picking up the win with Eric Almarola. They have been running better uh, as of late. I believe Harvick was in the top ten this weekend. But he would be the next one with the, with two more winners, new winners uh, outside the playoffs, jumping in. He would be the next one in points that would be pushed out. So that's definitely interesting. The other thing is, uh, Tommy mentioned uh, Daniel. I'm sorry, uh, Owen mentioned Daniel Suarez. He is one too that uh, seems to have dropped off lately, but we've seen them have strong runs with Trackhouse Racing. Uh, could come up and get one of these. I would say put it on the road course maybe, uh, but certainly as well at Daytona of all of a sudden popping in and getting a victory and being in the playoffs. And like I said, then we're looking at maybe Harvick having to point his way in or need that win. Okay. Yeah, I really think Stuart House Racing is starting to show some signs that they're turning the ship around. And I've been predicting for a while now that Kevin Harvick is one of these guys. Uh, Last year he won all those races and then fizzled out during the playoffs. I got a feeling that Kevin Harvick is going to do just the opposite this year. I think that he's going to go into this playoffs, and we might see him do what uh, Tony Stewart did a few years back and get a bunch of wins during the playoffs. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I just had this feeling all year long uh, that that's what he's had up his sleeve. Now, I know Stewart House Racing has been uh, a little bit struggling this year, uh, and I've also thought that it might be a throwaway year for them. Uh, but I don't know. I just think that they want to perform well during the playoffs, and I think we're seeing signs uh, that they're building that momentum uh, at just the right time uh, to go into the playoffs on a high note. So I, I just want to put that out there, that I do think uh, that Kevin Harvick is going to come up with a win before this is all said and done. Uh, and I do think that those guys that don't have a win, there's only three now that are in the top 16 that don't have a win, um, and that's Tyler Reddick, Kevin Harvick, and uh, Denny Hamlin. So... Uh, these guys uh, have really put themselves in in a very awkward situation. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Tyler Reddick come up with a win somewhere in all of this as well. But as far as Daytona is concerned, I think it's anybody's game and anybody, even Bubba Wallace. If you want to call out a dark dark horse, I'm going to call out Bubba Wallace as a dark horse for Daytona. Uh, he's, he's He's been a good one. Ryan Priest. Uh, has had some really good races. Uh, so uh, there's any number of drivers that could come up with that victory uh, and keep themselves in the top 30 and push some of these other guys out. But 
Um, it, it's going to be interesting. It makes it very interesting to watch uh, and a very compelling year. So, Owen, you get the final word on this one. Yeah, and I think another um, dynamic of this Daytona race that's going to be interesting is uh, whether or not we see teammates uh, working together or whether we see them uh, kind of going off on their own. I think the obvious one will be Dylan and Reddick. I mean, if they're battling for the final playoff spot and they're a few points apart, are they really going to be pushing each other or are they going to, you know, <laughs> kind of let each other run their own race? I, I sort of think it's going to be the latter. I can't see uh, Dylan just pushing Reddick into a playoff spot, but Another one that sort of comes to mind, if uh, some extenuating circumstances come about, could be Stuart Haas Racing. Uh, Eric Almirola did get the win, but with the number of winners we've already had and Almirola being so low in the standings, uh, if we get two more winners and Denny Hamlin continues to hold the regular season championship, Almirola could get knocked out if a new winner wins at Daytona. And if that winner is Kevin Harvick, or if that winner is Cole Custer or Chase Briscoe, uh, I don't think mm-hmm. we're going to see Almirola working with his teammates too much at Daytona if it comes down to it, unless there's a situation where Harvick needs to win and Almirola will still be in regardless. Um, yeah, I just think there's going to be a plenty of situations where we're going to see teammates going off on their own, uh, maybe abandoning team plans because they know that they need to look out for themselves. So I think it's going to be an absolutely wild race with plenty of dynamics to watch. Interesting point. Okay. Um, I'm going to bring up one now, and uh, I want to bring up the uh, topic of the end of the race. They cut it eight laps short, uh, and I wanted to know what your guys' thoughts were about that. Was it the right choice by NASCAR, or could they have finished this out? I know – Christopher Bell wishes they would have gone the extra eight laps, uh, but they didn't. So what are your guys' thoughts about that? Uh, Jay, we'll start with you. Okay, when they, when they got restarted after the uh, they got the track dry, uh, I'm trying to think how many laps the, the, the stage was, but at the end of stage one, they already told the drivers, hey, we are in a window it may be that we have to cut the race short, and they told them about it then. They knew that the entire time, and that is a, a an, uh, known thing at any track that doesn't have the lights. So we go back to uh, before Martinsville put in lights. Uh, I think Jeff Gordon ended up winning that race. They learned from that one of maybe they let that go too long, uh, as a lot of the drivers were screaming for several laps that it was dark to include your, your leader, Jeff Gordon, at the time. Um, but, again, that one you got to take with a grain of salt. Uh, but I think they learned from that. There shouldn't have been any complaints about it. I think it was, and I can't think of who it is, Christopher Bell's crew chief said, we didn't know for sure if we could catch him in those last eight laps anyway. He said, but we knew that's where we were at because they had told us already back at stage one. So I don't feel like any driver can have a complaint uh, as far as that. They knew it was coming, and, yeah, I think they made the right decision. We've seen that in the past. Uh, and They already possibly made one mistake starting the race under rain, finishing it under dark. would have been a double hit if there had been an issue. <laughs> okay, Owen? Well, I'll say that as an Eric Almirola fan, I was perfectly okay with the 10-to-go sign. <laughs> but even aside from that, 
even aside from that, uh, I, I agree with uh, Jay's point already. It, it's not like it was a last-minute decision and NASCAR just came out and said, oh, so we're cutting the race short. Uh, all the teams were aware of it, and from what I've seen, I haven't seen a single driver actually complain that that was an incorrect decision or that NASCAR may have overstepped there. The only complaints were about the start of the race, which are, I mean, very fair complaints. But um, from my end, at least, I think the end of the race was officiated pretty well. Um, whether or not Bell could have caught Elmer in the last eight laps, I think it was probably 50-50. I mean, he was making small gains, but they were kind of back and forth in terms of who was running faster laps. So I, I think it would have been pretty close. Um, but I do think I agree that if they would have ended that race under in the darkness and say Almirola can't see and runs into the back of Josh Balicki or something, um, NASCAR would have felt the pain of that one for a while. Uh, and it would have been doubled up by the fact that they started under rain and Kyle Busch wrecked. So um, I do think they made the right decision in the end. Um, it may not be the most popular one among fans, especially ones who don't like the playoff format, but uh, I think it was the correct decision in that scenario. Okay. Tommy? I think it was the right decision as well. Um and like Jay said, they had been told that they were going to say 10 laps to go at whatever point it was getting dark. So everybody knew it was coming. Um, it did look like Christopher Bell was catching Eric Almirola, but would it really have mattered? Who knows? But I think that they had learned from their mistake at the beginning of the race to go ahead and just call it a day. And um, Almirola wins. Everybody goes on vacation. Okay, I agree with you guys. I think NASCAR made the right call. I think it was a no-brainer, really. Uh, they learned from the past, which is a good thing, and uh, they they went, called it for safety reasons, and I think that was the smart thing to do. Uh, Eric Amarola had a strong car, so I think he would have won the race regardless, uh, even if they'd gone the eight, eight additional laps. We don't really know for sure. But I, I do think he had a strong enough car that he could have prevailed in the end. So, uh, again, I just think NASCAR made the right call. It was getting dark. Andy's always telling us it's a lot darker here than it looks like it is on TV. Uh, so take that into consideration if you're thinking about watching it from home. Uh, for those fans at the track, it's much, much darker than it is uh, what it appears to be on the TV. So, Jay, your follow-up? Uh, yeah, I've been in a TV broadcast with that. You're right that it can be pitch black out, and they can actually make it look like daylight. So you're right. When you're looking at it on TV, you can't make that kind of call from that. Um, I expected Owen there to have a little more with his statistics and uh, analytics, though. Uh, I know the broadcaster said that it was a back and forth, as he mentioned. Bell would gain two-tenths one lap, and, and Almirola would get it back the next lap. And it had been that way for four or five laps. So... It was pretty much a push. Would have been interesting to see the final laps and if Bell could run them down, if they caught any kind of traffic. You know, so many things can factor in. Um, but NASCAR did make the right decision. Uh, and I think, like everybody mentioned, it's, they've learned from the past, not just the start of that race, but previous races where they've pushed it to beyond a little bit, beyond darkness, uh, and getting the lash back of that. So I think that was a decision they had to make. And I believe, like I said, they made the right decision, said, hey, we know we're going to do it. We're going to tell you at stage one. And I don't remember who said it earlier. 
with the threat of weather or the threat of the race ending early like that, I think just changes the dynamic, the strategies, the pressure. It just adds to the intensity of the race. So uh, I think it was a cool thing. Okay. Owen. Yeah, I think analytically speaking, uh, we'll go back to those for a minute. I think uh, it was essentially a push. I think they were showing the miles per hour per lap, like, each time they crossed the line. And each time they were within, I'd say, like, two-tenths of a mile an hour of each other. And one time it would be Bell, who was slightly faster. One time it would be Almirola, who was slightly faster. And I think Bell catching Almirola was very possible. Passing at New Hampshire would have been another thing. Uh, not that passing was impossible yesterday. It definitely wasn't, but uh, you definitely have to work for your passes there. And uh, Almirola had a fast enough car that he definitely wasn't going to lay over and give it to the 20. Uh, plus, um, Austin Dillon is the reason that Bell caught Almirola in the first place. I think he held Eric up for two and a half laps uh, because he knew that that was going to put him outside the playoff picture if, Eric, if uh, Almirola won. Uh I think Bell was about two seconds back, and then all of a sudden he was half a second back after uh, Almirola finally passed Dylan. But uh, it ended how it ended. Um, I'm not going to lie. I was happy with how it ended. Um, and honestly, I thought it was a great race. I thought New Hampshire put up a great racing product. Uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that it had to get cut short, but um, I agree that it did add another racing element to it. So I think all in all, I would have considered it a pretty good day for NASCAR, especially in terms of just making up for the bad decision they made earlier and not doubling down on it. Okay, Tommy. Um, nothing really to add. Just I'm glad Almirola went uh, one two because it kind of makes it shakes it up a little bit, makes it more interesting, and uh, it's nice to see him actually run good. He's had a pretty pretty rough season, so. Um, and Christopher Bell, he was doing good as well, but he already has a win. So, like I said, glad to see Amarola win. Okay, I'm going to use up my time uh, to give our typical announcement at this time of the show, which is uh, coming up on the 10:30 mark, which is the close of the show. Now, what will happen for those people that are tuning in for the first time? We're going to continue our conversation past the 10:30 mark. So we will continue recording that conversation. And what's going to happen is you're going to hear us go off air as we are continuing our, our talks here. So, uh, but we want you to be rest assured that that recording is continuing to happen and it will become part of our bonus overtime material on our podcast. So all you have to do is uh, when I go out on Twitter, to let folks know that the podcast is here and that it's available, you can go to Blog Talk Radio's player or you can go to the player at fansforracing.com and fast forward to the two-hour mark to hear the rest of the conversation. Uh, so uh, depending on how long we go here, uh, just watch for my tweet on Twitter <laughs> about uh, the podcast being available and then you'll know that you can then go to the player and, and do that fast forwarding. So, again, don't want anybody to be caught off guard uh, when we go off the air. So, uh, Tommy, that puts you up for the next hot topic. Do you have any other topics you want to discuss? Uh, I got to talk about mine or the one I wanted to, which is SRX, so uh, maybe someone else. 
Okay, Jay? Uh, yeah, we got a couple here. Staying right now with New Hampshire, the, the decision to not use any kind of traction, uh, not traction control, but traction compound, pH1, whatever, uh, whether or not it felt that impacted the race, how, how we think it did, and whether or not they should be using it. Okay, Owen. Yeah, I think this is a good topic, and I think I actually brought this up in the uh, the earlier pre-show or uh, preview show review show. Sorry, with uh, Sharon, that I thought it actually made the race better that they didn't use the PJ one. Um, I think it really forced the drivers to work for their passes, and I'm not saying that it was so hard to pass that it was almost unenjoyable to watch. I'm saying that I think that there was enough passing that it was still entertaining. But it also wasn't so easy for just a faster car to go around somebody. You really had to to work them and make sure you timed your pass perfectly, which um, I think it really reflects what New Hampshire is, and that's a driver's racetrack. It's a difficult track to figure out. It's a difficult track to master. And I think when you really can't use that traction compound in the middle and higher lanes, it really makes you focus on timing that pass, uh, getting on the gas at the right time out of the uh, out of the corner. Just making sure you're in the right position at the right time if you really do want to pick up a spot. Um, I think the drivers do kind of rely on it occasionally, and not having it can cause some differences. Um, I didn't really like that they changed their mind on it midweek, but I do like that they didn't use it. I do think it was the right decision in the end. Okay, Tommy, your thoughts? Um, I feel like they used it at Phoenix this year, if I remember, and the drivers referring it to as the juice, but um, I, I don't really know much about that stuff. I know they use it at Texas, or they've been trying to use it at Texas to make that race more entertaining, but um, I'm one that's kind of like, why apply all that stuff? If you're going to do that, then maybe... It, you know, the track's not worth going to, in my opinion, or something, if you have to make adjustments to it like that. Uh, or maybe I shouldn't say it like that, but, I mean, I think you guys get what I'm saying. Like, if you have to tweak it like that, maybe you should reconsider doing something else. But um, I'm glad they didn't use it at New Hampshire. I think that they should stop using it and just let the tracks, just, just let them race the way they're on the, just let them race on the concrete or the asphalt. Don't do anything to it. Okay. I'm not sure if there was anything that precipitated them making that decision. Uh, did the drivers get involved with and, and ask them not to use the PJ1 at New Hampshire? Um, I'm not sure how that all came about. Uh, but in the end, and especially after hearing what Owen had to say, I, I tend to agree with him that it's probably better that they don't use it. Um, and, and we did see passing on the track. Uh, they had to work for it. Uh, but that's what makes New Hampshire Motor Speedway the track that it is. You do have to work for those passes, and uh, uh, but it didn't prevent them from passing either. So I think it was the right decision. And, Jay, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, when they first started doing this, I was kind of like with Tommy. If you've got a manufacturer side-by-side racing, uh, I wasn't necessarily in favor of it. And, uh, Sharon, this is going to go against yours. When it comes to a short track racing, a little bit of bumping and banging, uh, you know, is part of the short track racing. 
So I wasn't a big fan of it. I know that in certain tracks, I'll say that then there's the exception to the rule. When you have a track that, say, gets repaved, putting that in there for that second lane of grip to help that track work in better and quicker the first couple years, maybe I understand that. Um, But then we also had the situation where drivers were saying that if it got greasy or it didn't heat up enough, it was more of a hindrance than a help. So I'm not sure it did what they necessarily always wanted. Uh, And one example I did like of provided a little bit better is Pocono. Uh, you're not talking about a short track there. You don't want to see any, any, any kind of bumping and banging on a big track like that where they put it on the outside of some of the, tur- on the turns so that you didn't at least lose as much ground if you were stuck on the outside uh, where you got shuffled back 10 positions. You maybe only lose one or two. So I'll say there's some exceptions or, or spots where they could maybe use it but I didn't like seeing it where they wanted to manufacture side-by-side racing on a short track. If you had to root and gouge a little bit, I was okay with that, and I like to see that. And we saw it this weekend at New Hampshire. Drivers accepted that. They made their holes or worked their way back into the bottom line when they had to. Same thing with Martinsville. So I felt like, especially at the short tracks, it kind of took away from some of the short track atmosphere. Okay, Owen. Um, I think that with the entire PJ one argument, I, I, I like the I, or I like the uh, point of you can't manufacture side by side racing, and I think that's very true. I think that tracks that have good racing are going to have good racing naturally, and I think that if you have to force side by side racing, you have to close racing, then. Uh, maybe then the track is the issue or maybe the package is the issue. But if the cars can't run the way you want them to, the way the track is currently built, then I don't know if it's really worth changing the track just to produce a better racing product. Um, In the case of New Hampshire this weekend, I think we saw a great race. I'm not sure how much the removal of the PJ1 had to do with that, but we saw a lot of comers and goers. We saw guys go to the front slide back a little bit. We saw guys get really fast in the long run. Some were faster in the short run. And overall, I think we actually saw very good battles throughout the field. And they weren't just running single file like I think a lot of people thought they would when the announcement came out that they weren't going to be using the PJ1. So I think it was an encouraging sign for other tracks that are maybe going through the same debate of do we use it, do we not. Uh, Seeing that a track like New Hampshire, a flat track that's just about a mile can not use it and still have, you know, uh, these passes and these battles in the top five and in the top ten, uh, that's an encouraging sign for other tracks in the sport. Okay. Uh, Tommy, your follow-up. Yeah, that, that was the, the way I meant to phrase it. Like, if you have to put PJ1 down on the track, maybe you should actually look into the track itself or the car or the package, I mean. Um, But I'm glad New Hampshire didn't use it, and New Hampshire showed that you don't need it. So, um, and I like short track racing. I like bumping and banging. um, So I'm all for that. But maybe, because I feel like every year they're always talking about PJ1 at Texas, so maybe it's time for them to look into doing something different at Texas, maybe. Okay. 
Well, I agree with you guys. I think they made the right decision, and I enjoyed the racing at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. You know, in the past, we've seen races where uh, Jeff Burton, for example, led all 300 laps uh, around that track and and won the race. Uh, so because nobody could pass each other. So I think that uh, uh, the traction uh, didn't seem to make any difference as far as um, I, I just think that they made the right decision in not using it and putting more of the control into the driver's hands because the drivers had to be involved with that passing uh, that did take place on the track, and I think it was the right call from, from NASCAR. So I don't have a whole lot more to say, I guess. Jay? Yeah, there there certainly have been some tracks and some times when we've seen that and and there again, just as as with anything, when you see one driver dominate, you know Martin Truex leads 400 or 300 and come out out of 400 for the Coca-Cola 600. You don't change the race. That happens. Sometimes one driver has it covered. So to try and change something just to prevent that, uh, you know, a, f- a football game, they don't change something when somebody blows somebody out uh, 40 to nothing. You, you know, you accept it and move on. That was their week. They had it. And I think to a driver like Kevin Harvick, when you talk about certain tracks, Harvick is one that calling that Harvicking the track or taking that bottom line and cutting it. And other people that have really tried his line, that is just something he has as a driver or something him and his crew chief have managed to work together to find a way to run a line somebody else isn't rather than being given a line where the, the track gives them that, that control and that cushion. I say cushion, it's not a dirt track, but grip. Of I think it's, you know, work with the crew chief. Goodyear comes into play. They work with different tires. And now the, the different package that, that NASCAR has been coming with, with the horsepower. So I think there are some other ways other than putting that traction compound down and I say I use the word manufacture side by side. To me, then we're getting into the WWE style. <laughs> okay. Uh, Owen, did you have any other hot topics? Um, I think that the one I mainly wanted to talk about was the one I already brought up. And um, honestly, I don't think I have anything else for tonight. I think that it's been a crazy week of racing, uh, but I think we've covered the majority of the stuff that happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, no worries there. Jay, you always have a cadre of uh, ideas. I, I was going to say, you know, these guys seem to be satisfied. Yeah, no, they, they they seem to be satisfied. I'm never satisfied. Uh, actually, I think, <laughs> Sharon, it's one you put up here. The NASCAR says they're satisfied with their testing results and teams will now be getting the next-gen chassis uh, this coming week. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about that because there was some talk a few weeks ago uh, that the testing showed that the crash results on the chassis uh, were not favorable and actually indicated some fatalities. Uh, NASCAR said that they were already looking into all of that uh, and analyzing their data and that they would get back to us when they had information. Well, I guess uh, they reviewed that information and they're not seeing any issues with it to the point that they are distributing chassis to the teams this week. Uh, so 
Uh, let's start with Owen. What are your thoughts about that, Owen? Sorry, can you actually repeat the topic? My phone, like, completely cut out for about 15 seconds. I have no idea what just happened. Oh, okay. We're talking about how NASCAR has reviewed the data on the uh, test results, the crash test results, and they are satisfied that there are no issues, so they're distributing chassis to the team this week for the next-gen car. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I actually am pleased to see that. I did see an uh, Instagram post today about the teams getting the new next-gen chassis. Um, so that is a positive sign. Uh, I do remember seeing some rumblings in social media last week um, that were of varying credibility, that there were some issues with the safety tests, that uh, there were multiple tests on uh, super speedways where the uh, crash dummy was uh, classified as deceased. Um, but uh, NASCAR quickly debunked that. Uh, multiple people from their safety team said that that was not true. And as long as they are doing their due diligence and making sure that these cars are safe and are at least up to par with what they've got now, if not better, um, I think it's great. I think it's good that NASCAR is moving forward with the next-gen car, and I'm excited to see uh, the product that it puts on track next year. Okay. Uh, Tommy, your thoughts? I was just glad to hear that – well, I guess I'm glad to see that the safety part is resolved and that they're comfortable with it, which is good news. And I did see on Twitter where I believe it was Jenna Fryer, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure how you say her last name. I think that's it. But uh, she had tweeted that uh, the all the crash stuff was um, blown out of proportion, kind of, actually. Or that's at least what I saw, but um, I didn't think it was good news when we heard fatalities and then there was kind of like no, no comment stuff. I'm not a big fan of that stuff. Even Bob Podcast was like, I think the people have the right to know. But I understand being an insurance, why NASCAR doesn't say anything because lawsuits and all that good stuff happen and insurance has to pay and that's something that they don't want to pay ever. Okay. Yeah, it seems to me like uh, the information was overblown, uh, and Jennifer obviously confirmed that. Uh, And I think that NASCAR said at the time that there was a lot more data that they had to look at to make their determinations about the safety uh, from those crash tests. So it seems like they've done their due diligence, and uh, the fact that they're passing out the chassis uh, tells me that uh, the next-gen car is on its way uh, to teams, and they're getting uh, those chassis in plenty of time. I guess everybody's going to get seven to work with and uh, for the year, uh, seven chassis of this uh, new next-gen car. Uh, and I assume that that includes a low-course chassis, a short-track chassis, and so forth. So... Uh, uh, I thought that was an interesting caveat to that as well. So, Jay, your thoughts? Well, I want to know where Tommy was when we had this discussion last week when all these rumblings were happening. Uh, the insurance aspect of it is interesting. If word gets out that there might be an issue in the first accident that happened, somebody's going to scream, hey, NASCAR knew that there was an issue and didn't do anything about it. So that at least gives a reason. However, 
as Mike and I both pointed out, and even Bob Pockris, put the information out there and make it public, and you won't have the amount of, hey, there's rumors started or it's getting blown up. If NASCAR would have come out mm-hmm. and said, hey, we've looked at this data, there is this indication, however, we don't have all the data, and we're going to continue testing in this area to make sure it isn't uh, uh, something we need to be concerned about. But they didn't do that. Even after the first rumblings came out, they just didn't want to talk about it. And that made it all the more suspicious. So hopefully that all did get settled and there is no issue with the car. And I understand it has a place, the simulation and, and all that. But one of the things I firmly believe in is put it in the driver's hands, put it in the crew's hands. When they come and say, hey, we found something, this isn't working, we need to change this, trust the ones that are doing it and putting it through its ringer as far as on track uh, and whatnot. Now, like I said, I, there's value in the, in the simulation testing. I understand that. But there's some things you just can't simulate. A driver can tell you by the seat of his pants something that's wrong that a simulator might not be able to pick up. Okay. Uh, Owen, your follow-up. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. It's just, you know, I mean, obviously the simulator is a huge tool for NASCAR in terms of safety, but uh, just making sure that in the driver's test and anything that they do with this next-gen car, just making sure that there aren't any apparent problems. Uh, The last thing NASCAR wants to do is send out a product that is, uh, you know, less safe than the one they currently have now. Uh, every step they make is supposed to be a step in the right direction. Um, making a car that's less safe than the current product would be a step in the wrong direction. So um, as long as NASCAR is doing their due, due diligence and continuing to do everything possible to keep these drivers safe, I think that uh, the next gen should move along smoothly. Okay, Tommy. Uh, just glad to hear that they're distributing the chassis so the cars can get ready for Daytona. 2022 is on the way already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew they were on a deadline to try to get that stuff done uh, because, as we all know, uh, they call it the off-season, but for a lot of these teams, it's not really an off-season. These guys are working on that Daytona car uh, already in September. Was there anything more, Tommy, that you wanted to say? Oh, that was it. I'm good. Yeah, I don't really have anything more to add. So, Jay, you get the final word. Yeah, I'm glad to see. I know we we had heard that, again, with these tests and the possibility of them not even being able to to run it and push it next year, or it was going to have to, I think it was Freddie Kraft that had made the statement of, the limited rollout, only certain tracks. Normally you start with short track road courses. I would have liked to have seen the teams had their hands on it a little bit earlier, but uh, it, it is what it is. And, you know, the fact that they will now, uh, Sharon, you said it, uh, you know, if they're working on their cars for next year already in September. If they're able to, some of these teams are working on them already back, you know, as early as uh, March, April, May, uh, they weren't able to in this case, so the more time they have with it to work with it, uh, good and bad. Again, they might find something they're going to try and expose or work with that they shouldn't be, but they are also going to come with some things of, hey, this is good, this is working, we've tested it, or, you know, 
ran it through the ringer, as I said. So I, I think it, it's got some good and some bad. You know, like I said, so some of these crew chiefs, the more time you give them with it, the more they're going to find to uh, expose his loopholes. But uh, overall, hopefully this is a big enough window that we have some good racing going into 2022. I like all the things that I've heard so far as far as going forward with the car, the cost, the safety, uh, everything that from that aspect. So uh, I'm glad they're able to move forward with it and we didn't have to delay it yet again. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're coming up to the top of the hour here, about 10 minutes to go. Any other quick ones you have there, Jay? Or are we ready to call it a night? No, I think that was the uh, the other one, only other one we had up uh, on our board, and I say I threw up the last one of Harvick, and we kind of tied that into the uh, just the overall standing. So I think we are good for tonight. Okay, I am going to make an announcement here in this extra time that we have, uh, and that is with the uh, Olympic break that's going on. Uh, there are no NASCAR races that are taking place over the next two weeks. So uh, this Monday night show, uh, for a couple of weeks here, we will be returning. We're going to be off on uh, July the 26th and August the 2nd. There will be no Monday night show. We will return on August 9th to review the races at Watkins Glen. And then what Jay and I are going to do on the Thursday night uh, leading up to uh, all of that is we will preview the ARCA races and review the ARCA races that are taking place during this uh, Olympic um, uh, break that they're taking. So we'll be doing both review and preview on Thursday nights for that two-week period. Uh, but like I say, we will be back on the air for Monday night beginning August the 9th. So I uh, just wanted to alert everybody to that, just one night a week for the next two weeks for Hot Topics, and that will be on Thursday nights. And I know, Owen, that kind of eliminates you because you only have Monday nights available for us. Uh, but uh, we'll be back on that on August the 9th. Gotcha. I will be back for whenever the Mondays return, so I'm excited for that. Okay, good deal. Uh, so we wanted to alert all of our listeners as well. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, the Olympics, of course. So we hope everybody stays safe. And uh, we're looking forward to the ARCA racing that's taking place over these next two weeks as well. So look for Jay and I to be returning this Thursday night. Uh, and uh, we'll be reviewing, previewing the ARCA races uh, that are taking place. In fact, those ARCA races include, let me um, go to that. Okay, those ARCA races, they're racing at Winchester uh, on, on, on the 31st, but before that, uh, they're w- racing at Iowa this coming weekend, and that's a double double race between the ARCA East and the ARCA Menard Series. So uh, I would look for the hot topics to start at 930 on these nights as well. 
for the uh, 22nd as well as the 29th. And the 29th, we'll be reviewing Winchester for the Arca Menard Series and the Arca West at Colorado National. So uh, uh, two big races there for those events. And, of course, on the 5th, we'll be reviewing uh, the races at Watkins Glen, uh, which is the next road course that's up on the schedule. So a lot to look forward to there. Um, And let's go ahead and start our roundtable. Jay, we'll start with you tonight. All right. You can follow me on Facebook, uh, Michael Hoosman, MoparMJ8 on Twitter and Instagram. And you can compare mine to Tommy's as far as what tracks we want to see the SRX at next year. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Tommy. Uh, Tommy underscore C24 or at Cincinnati5Fan on Twitter. And um, I have some good tracks, I think. Um, Slingers in the Midwest or in the in uh, Wisconsin. So I didn't – that was the only one that wasn't in the South, basically. Uh, and Owen. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at CF Stewart, followed by two underscores. And I will be getting back to the writing of the power rankings this week. I just got a new job, so I was adjusting, but I am back and ready to write. Uh, Also, big thanks to Sharon for allowing me to co-host the uh, review show tonight. That was a lot of fun. Hopefully, I can do that again in the future. Okay. Well, I was going to say a big thanks to Owen for co-hosting tonight uh, in place of uh, Salsa Gala. He he had to work tonight, and uh, we really appreciated you. I was telling Jay earlier uh, I feel like we're building a lot of strength and uh, backbench here uh, for when these situations come up. Uh, it just so happened that Andy wasn't available, Sal wasn't available, Andy wasn't available, and neither was Jay. So I was glad that I was be, was able to go out to you, Owen, and that you were available. And, Tommy, you never know when we might tap you on the shoulder. <laughs> so be prepared. Thanks for having me again. Well, we always we we appreciate having you guys on, and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, also, I, I really think we've got a great fan for racing crew right now. Looking forward to those power rankings coming out. We had Sam's uh, recap out today on uh, on the Eric Almarola win at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. And uh, I know Mike was working on something. I I don't know if he's still working on that, but uh, hopefully we'll get his article out here uh, as well. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. A big shout-out to our listeners for tuning in to hear what we have to say each and every week. We appreciate you for taking the time out of your day to do that. And uh, we hope uh, to have you back with us uh, for the next show on Thursday night, the 22nd. Uh, when we do our preview and uh, of the Arkham Monard series. So uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. I guess we'll call that a wrap, guys. All right. Good night, everybody. All right.
it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.